0: So um, here in Western uh, philosophy, Western ideology, question is, what happens when somebody's somebody dies? I have an answer for it, and so, um, so uh, one answer to that question, and this isn't the only answer, there's many answers and everything, is that the uh, the mind itself is shifted in time, typically forward, and the memories and experiences of that person are retained, and, um, but uh, they're disassociated. So the things that, uh, that happen in that person's past becomes a hobby, and here's a for instance. Um, Tom Paris uh, in um, Star Trek uh, Voyager, he's got an affinity for um, old cars, basically the uh, Fords. Now, he's actually on board a Starship in the year 2460, but um, or 2470 and everything. But he has this detailed knowledge of, of automobiles um, in the 1930s through 1960s era. And um, a lot of times he's diagnosing things and everything from cars. Well, let's say this guy in a prior life was actually a mechanic. And, um, in the future, you know, he wanted to be a little bit more, you know, he saw UFOs maybe back in his prior life, and, um, ended up getting these hints and ideas of there being more out there, and, uh, ultimately it ends up, you know, a life selects him at the same time he selects a life, and, uh, ultimately he actually becomes a, um, a pilot, so he could, may not, may not have just been a mechanic, maybe he was a, an auto racer, and, um, you know he liked the idea and concept of being being a pilot well so what happens next once he gets moves on from that life becomes bored with it um however you want to put it and everything the 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 shift forward in time he moves 500 years into the future and uh, all of a sudden he becomes a a pilot and um you know a, a ship pilot And at that point, he, you know, ends up, uh, being capable of (laughs) pretty much, you know, um, he goes through the experiences of the Starship Enterprise and all that stuff, while at the same time, he ends up, um, you know, retaining, a great deal of the knowledge that he had, knowledge and experience that he had as a mechanic and everything. So, on occasion, they have anomalous events and everything that happen. You know, uh, they find an old junker Ford floating out in the middle of space. Well, he's got prior knowledge of this, you know, so he knows that, uh, that thing's out there, and he knows exactly what it is, and as a result, boom, you know, he ends up, uh, you know, coming up out with a solution, everything for it. You know, similarly, there's the um, the event of uh, what is it? Um, there's constantly uh, things going on with Paris and um, more or less a French era cafe. Well, I mean that's a that's a part of the whole. Um, maybe you know he was actually in World War Two. And uh, that's, you can trace down his lineage, you know, and, and discover that uh, maybe he's, you know, somebody that was lost in World War II or something like that. Um, you know, so he takes the experiences and the education and everything from the past. That shifts forward, and uh, it uh, works to integrate within the environment, and not only that, but expand the possibilities from a disassociated perspective. So another, for instance, would be... Um, they end up, um, oh, what is it, um, in a hologram. And, uh, later the doctor actually becomes a part of a little thing that, uh, a little holographic, uh, the doctor's a holographic doctor. Well, we'll say the doctor is, uh, trying to court a woman in a holographic way, and he takes them to a simulation of being in a 1950s car that, uh, Paris designed and everything to put here. So, that's, uh, that's my belief is, um, You know, there's this somewhat repetitive nature where reality, uh, we can shift things forward, you know, and uh, that's actually what's responsible for creating new events in the future while at the same time retaining experiences as well. So, at the same time, you've got, uh, you know, all these events and everything that happened, You know, that uh, who he is. Um, You've also got, uh, you know, a history as well. So you don't have to lose the experiences. You just simply add to those experiences. You enhance those experiences. You, You bring them, you know, more... What's the best word for it? The more depth, more detail. You add something, you know, flavor. You know, so let's say he was a mechanic before now, all of a sudden he has the memories um in a disassociated way of knowing about cars you know but where does where do all these memories come from you know so that's that's the whole you know premise here's just like, well, you know, if you dug into it, you know he might uh, he might instinctually subconsciously know, but why why would he want to instead just basically say, you know what?" this is a part of the past, you know, um, we're building a new future, and this is a different life, and, well, eh, let's try to make something better of, of life moving forward from here, you know, something different, something more, you know, ripe with possibilities, so, in any case, I thought I'd mention that, that, uh, the potentially recurrent nature of reality when the quote quote unquote soul leaves the body it finds a new body and that new body um, more or less is it leverages the experiences of the past and uh... writes it into the new timeline and at that point that new timeline actually becomes a an integrated part of the past, and uh, integrated part of that person and everything, without actually having to remember the past, you know, so, in, a, in an associated way. So it's like me being Q. I mean, I knew, I discovered I was Q um, back six or seven years ago. Um, now, I discovered it in a hard, hey, this is a disassociated way, where, I, I saw them, some things that lit my hair on fire, and I, I had to create a new identity, you know, but the new identity, while the prior version of me, you know, um, is not me. The memories and experiences, and in particular, some of the things that I can watch on TV as an education of, of the possibilities, give me um, context, you know, into this perspective and everything, and help me build on and become something that I wasn't before, you know. That's the cool thing for me is it gives me the progressive capability to keep on expanding on the possibilities, and become something, you know, greater. Than I was capable of becoming before, you know. I'm not saying I was limited before, you know. But what I am saying is, it's just like this is change, and and you know, from my perspective, it, it's well-needed change. So it's not the ultimate change, and you know, it's just I don't feel like there's you know ever going to really be an end, you know, to anything. You know, it's just for me, particular from my perspective, it's just reinvention you know the necessity to become something <laughs> become something I couldn't imagine possible before and uh, slowly but surely I'm starting to realize that there are limitations to the Q perspective as well so anyways um, but so the experiences that we have as individuals and everything still re- still is retained you know um, but like I said you know that we you know, Paris puts his perspectives through the lens of integrating certain concepts and ideas and everything within the ship as he's actually, you know, doing his thing. Me, I disassociate my experiences, you know, and integrate those within my life and everything through TV shows mainly, you know. And, um, you know, someone went through some more visceral experiences, but uh, mostly TV shows. So, anyways, that's about it for now. Uh, more later. So I'm watching a Star Trek Discovery um, season two episode 19. Um, one of the main characters in the uh, in the TV show is a uh, is a doctor that's actually got something called uh, that they refer to as the phage, and the phage is a virus um, that more or less. Uh, con- supposedly consumes their body and makes it so where they lose control and capabilities of their physical self and everything and their body literally erodes so it's uh, a this is the claim and everything but mysteriously the woman looks like a Borg now I've had a feeling the whole time that the Borg have been trying to shape an image um, based on concepts of what it means to be human and everything through crafting, you know, through some form of, you know, potentially cloning you might be able to refer to it as. And uh, I've been really interested because eventually they they land on Seven of Nine, and Seven of Nine um, is a story, and the Borg do understand stories. I do definitely understand, you know, believe that, that they have the power to be able to mask them and create stories, and that's actually where a big part of this narrative comes from for Star Trek Voyager. So it's uh my belief that the whole time Star Trek Voyager is there they're actually trying to um leverage the the show potentially itself as a vessel as a means of exchange with my reality in order to actually try to create a a, a more or less an, an ideal female or or something that uh, is more or less a representation of hu- of humans. Now, it's my belief they're not necessarily doing this in a nefarious way. They're just trying to understand humanity. And uh, not necessarily to take it over, but uh, more or less, that's who they are. It's just like they're a programmed species. They enjoy the interactions of of um, individuals and entities that uh, have the capability to be able to interact with people on a programmed-type basis and everything. So, in any case... um. It's uh, my belief that this is an early experiment, and uh, they're actually at this point trying to understand psychology, trying to understand the way the mind works, and they're suspecting that it's actually a product of the mind that's actually causing um, some of the uh, things you know that's uh, is occurring with uh, with their problems, and they think it's a product of the mind. Um, well, that's my belief, they're suspecting that it's a product of the mind, and that's actually why they're doing what they're doing, as they present this woman um, as a uh, as an individual um, that uh, has this quote-unquote thing called uh, called the phage. So, and the phage, basically, it disfigures somebody. It uh, makes them look bad. So, to some degree, the Borg, as a programmed entity, um, they... Look to, they have a tendency to look to external sources for um, responsibility for someone that uh, that more or less is responsible for you know making and shaping who they are. So, in any case, um, I thought I'd mention it. I found it interesting. The Borg are experimenting here and to expand on that just a little bit the reason why i say that they're experimenting is if you look at the um the idea the head and the um devices that are attached the neural transmitter and everything they are a technologically advanced species whose body has actually um, has actually eroded degraded to such an, a degree that uh, they no longer have control um, physiologically of their own body and to some degree they you know they, they don't know that they're not responsible um, And that the problems that are occurring with them are actually something based on their own logic and mindset and everything, because they externalize things and uh, point the more or less point the finger, you know, and make themselves the victim of other species and everything, um, which may be a calculated mindset that they ended up doing. It's not something they do as a to become a victim. They do it to actually encounter and discover other species and other perspectives and everything. because of this, they they put kind of like the, what is it, the onus on those that uh, discover and, and work with them to more or less uh, evolve their, their presence to become something more than what they were before. So that's what they're doing here, is they're presenting the first, you know, entity. In this case, it's a... Uh, you know, it's a human, you know, looking, looking, humanoid looking thing that uh, isn't fully human and everything. And uh, they're using it to more or less interact with humans for the first time. In this case, they're interacting with the doctor in a holographic way, and to some degree, they're also doing reconnaissance on it, too. So I find it interesting, you know, that there's species out there like this and everything that, uh, I mean, it's not that much different than humans when it comes down to it. Okay, the, um, the rest of this podcast today is going to be a little bit experimental in nature. I had promised before to, uh, to go through and, uh, uh pardon me, discuss, um, magic cards and, um, real-life equivalents and everything. And I'm interested in, uh, kind of like, uh, understanding hacking from different perspectives and everything. So... One thing I, I do on a regular basis is I take things and I draw analogies to other unrelated areas for the same ideas and concepts. And uh, what this means is, um, let's say, for instance, I'm, um, <laughs> I'm programming, and as I first learned how to hack and everything, there's something called promiscuous mode. And uh, when you you take a a computer and you put it into promiscuous mode, it's basically listening on the the subnet um, that uh, you're actually as a part of on the network. And it's listening to all network traffic. So it's basically pulling in everything from everywhere um, on the subnet that you're actually confined to and everything. And uh, this promiscuous mode is what makes it possible to go over to, like, a Starbucks wireless uh, network, which they've sent, you know, put in safeguards to prevent somebody like me from doing something like this. Um it allows them the capability to uh well the promiscuous mode allows me to leverage something like Wireshark or uh pff, yeah, the other one's uh, any sniffing tool um, there's something called the air air cap is another one that uh, can actually trap a uh, network traffic at the um, or it allows you to capture wireless traffic at a uh, wireless level so it's at a driver level but um the whole idea of promiscuous mode is you listen and can send and re- or you listen to everything that occurs on a network. So even when information isn't intent for me to receive it, that means I can receive it. Well, if you analogize the whole concept of what promiscuous mode is, is from a network, um, I started asking the questions. You know, what's the difference between promiscuous mode for me? You know, sleeping around. I love my women. You know, so. I've slept around a lot, and I don't use protection. You know, never. Um, It's just something I refuse to use, just because I don't believe in the whole concept of disease like that. um, Nor do I believe in the whole concept that uh, you know that more or less. um, If you're going to be you know having sex with somebody, I want it to be enjoyable. You know, and it's not enjoyable like that, plain and simple. So, in any case, um, I I at this point was really kind of like interested and understanding, you know, promiscuous mode from a computer perspective versus promiscuous mode from a humanistic perspective. Now, I do this with a lot, you know, so I draw mental analogies, and I try to understand things by basically understanding an, uh, an, an unrelated area first, and then applying it to to the area that I'm actually uh, trying to research, you know, from a research perspective, this can give some ideas and understandings about uh, some things that uh, that you normally wouldn't have. So, for instance, you know, on the idea of conception and everything, um, the the whole idea and. and Um, idea of something called immaculate conception really never made sense to me but if you look at it from a promiscuous mode perspective and everything and ask what the difference is between promiscuous uh, when you're sleeping around why it would be referred to as promiscuous mode and what are the analogies to a um, you know to a computer system well at this point you know, if all energy is interconnected, um, and well, if all matters actually, you know, if you if you don't think about. Um, by the process of uh, of birth and creation as being something purely biological, chemical, and you take it just a lower level to an energy level perspective and everything. Well, at that point, um, it starts giving little ideas and concepts about what um, what immaculate conception is. You know, from a, a purely scientific perspective and everything, and how conception can op- occur at a at a physical layer itself at a physical level. Well, if you analogize this to promiscuous mode in a computer system, you're at a physical layer perspective opening up the hardware to basically receive all information from all sources within the physical layer of, you know, of (laughs) of the machine. So this, you know, for me, it's just, it's helped me learn about subjects that, uh, you know, this cross-application when I understand promiscuous mode is applied to a computer system, but I don't understand the whole idea and concept of what immaculate conception is and how something like that's possible. Well, cross-apply, you know, that's the whole basis. Cross-apply the concepts, and at that point, I can actually learn a little bit more. Well, it, it's, not just a, it's not just great for research, but it's also great for uh, this cross-application method of understanding things you know um, is is highly it's highly crucial for me this is something I had to get over early on was saying that there's no relation Um, you know with, with certain aspects of it like and that's actually for me a critical factor to overcome overcome the instinctual rejections that you might have to believing that there's no relation the the idea and concept that there's no relation is just simply a lack of understanding of a subject, in my opinion. Um, it doesn't mean there's no relation. There's no relationship given the current knowledge that you have. You know that's actually something I had to take into consideration. Or everything. So w- with this, um, you know, I've also made it a fact to uh, to study. You know, Hollywood. You know, from a creative perspective through cross application like this. You know, so. Um, I, I for the longest time was trying to understand creativity, so I started asking the question, you know, from a computing perspective, what makes a, what's the difference between a good programmer versus a great one, and not only that, but um, what, what is creativity when it comes down to computing, and it comes down to programming, and. Um, You know, I looked at it directly for the things that I was tangible, you know, within myself, you know, within um, the direct areas that I would actually get into and everything, and I I would start realizing, okay, well, creative is not being able to read the manual and just do a, a regurgitation of that manual. You know, um, that's that's just your memory, you know, capabilities and everything. A lot of people have that kind of eidectic memory um, to be able to take something and interpret it just by reading the manual and doing exactly as the manual says or, or rough translations from it. Um, sure, that, that can be construed a little bit as creativity and everything, but, you know... Um, it, by and large, you know, creativity isn't just about read RTFM, you know, reading the fucking manual, nor is it about reading the uh, educational resources or going to school or anything like that as well. You know, these things help, you know, with the creativity, don't get me wrong, you know, but it's not uh, not the single solitary resource that's responsible for creating, you know, for, for creativity when it comes down to computing, nor is it uh, responsible for creating creativity when it comes down to, uh, to movies or TV shows or anything like that either. You know, so what is it then? And uh, I was looking for a single source and uh, what uh, what makes a a good programmer or a great programmer a great programmer. And um, I started realizing it's just like it's not necessarily confined to one simple subject, it's simple adaptivity, the ability to be able to roll, you know, with the capabilities and be able to perform at the very least at a minimal level of standards, and, uh, and then from there, you know, being able to catch that groove and be able to move forward and everything with that kind of knowledge. That's what I realized. Now, these people that I've noticed and everything, Ron is one of my, uh, Ron Ostrium, in my opinion, he's a programming god. He's easily one of the, he's easily the best programmer I have ever Met in my life. Um, there's nothing the man can't do. Um, he worked on Windows originally. Um, he, you know, some of the things, I mean, I go on with the list of, of things that I've observed and heard, heard that the guy's actually achieved. So, Ron, if you're listening, you know what? I'm you know even though we're not ch- we're not chatting anymore um nobody has stood a hair you know to you you know as far as your capabilities and everything um, Bill's the only one that's actually come close in my opinion Mike Moore, maybe a third one and everything but besides that i've I've not known anybody it's you know with your capabilities and everything and I'm you know forever in in your gratitude for you know having no- known you and everything so anyways, with that said. What I noticed about the man, um, he was highly, highly what I consider not just creative, but capable, you know, with what he did. So ca- with creativity comes capability, the ability to be able to adjust to and actually um, do basically anything, anytime, anywhere, you know, when it comes down to the resources that he's got, got at his hands and at his disposal. And um, I just repeatedly noticed that the guy w- could do more or less anything with a computer. So, you know, you give him a new programming language, boom, he picks it up within a couple, uh, couple hours you know, literally, um, you give them, um, you know, different ideas and concepts and everything, not only is he, is he taking it and doing something, you know, with it, but he's also taking, taking it in a direction that the original designers didn't intend. Repeatedly, he would do this. I remember one time when uh, HTML first came out, he actually wrote, wrote a desktop-based uh, GUI environment inside the DOM before it was cool. You know, I mean, it literally mirrored the Windows-based operating system. He all, he did it entirely within the DOM, and it was high speed and fucking and everything. And I'm just like going, how the fuck does somebody do something like that? Mimic the literal appearance of a, of a desktop GUI, you know, of Windows-based operating system within a, a browser-based environment. Well, shortly after that, that's when, uh, when Microsoft came out with their active desktop. And uh, at that point, it's just like, wow, you know, it's almost like Microsoft is actually, you know, watching <laughs> Ron from afar. You know, little did I know how close to correct that was. But um, that's actually, f- so if I'm actually to say, you know, who, who, um, who presented the most capable uh, person, uh, you know, from a creativity perspective and everything in IT, and hands down, he wins it. And and uh, really it came down to, you know, the creativity was the ability to be able to adjust, you know, to dynamically adapt, you know, to the requirements of the community and everything, um, combined with being able to put it, put his own spin on things. You know, um, both the two capabilities was like a one-two knockout punch. He was great at what he did, and not only that, but, you know, he, made excellent uh, money. I mean, he's one of the highest paid programmers I've ever met and deservedly so, too. So, and and it doesn't come down to just about money. It just comes down to the guy deserves a, a wonderful lifestyle. Um, just because he enjoys what he does, you know, and it it was clear to me that I enjoyed what he did. And I think that's the third component. So it's not just adaptability, it's not just um, the ability to to make it your own, but it's also the ability to be able to enjoy what you do from a a genuine perspective and everything. And um, as time was going on, I think this is actually something I realized, you know, about myself was I wasn't really enjoying things you know, um, as much from a programming perspective. I mean, I would be introduced things and different ideas and concepts and everything from from a programming perspective. I mean, I'd take on new languages, and, you know, I got into C Sharp early on, and uh, ended up shifting over from there to other, you know, to business intelligence, and, you know, I ended up, you know, doing a lot of lo- lower-level programming early in my career, you know, Assembler, C, C++, all the way to uh, Visual Basic. I played with programming, uh, other programming languages like Pascal, Fortran, COBOL. Um, You know, just went from there to other languages, you know, more esoteric um, fourth-generation GUI languages, you know, Delphi and... uh, and um, Power Builder being a couple of them, and uh, getting into database development with Access and SQL Server, and, you know, after that a little bit with MySQL, and uh, never really touched Oracle, never really want to either. You know, but um, all of these things for me, I started realizing it's just like I'm seeing the same things over and over again. And uh, in a general sense, it's just, um, you know, it's almost like the people that I'm actually generating anything from a report to, um, they, aren't, they simply aren't understanding the material that I'm presenting. And I especially noticed this with uh, Uh, Wells Fargo when I was working over there, and I I was providing, you know, these uh, managers and uh, directors and VPs and even the president uh, the capability to be able to receive information, you know, that uh, uh, they can actually dynamically adjust. They can change what they receive. They can receive it any way they want to and everything, you know, and um, I can tell that the information I was presenting, they just didn't, flat out didn't understand it. You know, and I'd been noticing this increasingly from, I would go so far to say back to about 2007, you know, um, on. um, The information I was providing, it just wasn't well received, and most people didn't seem to be understanding how I was doing, what I was doing, and why I was doing it. You know, and a good, for instance, was I was working with something called the, um, it wasn't a... um, Oh, what was it, a mock framework, MOQ framework. And uh, what MOQ does is it allows you the capabilities as C Sharp or C Sharp developer and everything to abstract certain layers of your application, make it so where you create stubs, uh, things that perform more or less like the original um, layer um, without actually being that layer that, that, itself. So, for instance, you can actually replace a, replace a MOQ layer. Um, they called it mock framework, um, a mock framework for... A database layer that would actually access the database and you could replace it with um, with code leveraging this MOQ framework and at that point you can actually inject information um, into it without actually being plugged directly into the database layer and and the the purpose and intention for this is to make sure that you don't corrupt the original data that's there um, that's the that was a per the primary goal of uh, moq is to make it so where you're not you can isolate your testing environments and you can actually make it so where your focus specifically on your target uh, code that you're actually trying to test. And typically it requires an tier type layer system and everything where you're focused on three three tiers. You know, you've got a middle tier, you've got the UI slash presentation layer, and you've also got the database layer. And uh, all those layers are responsible for interacting with each other, but you tend to isolate those and isolate the development um, team that's actually responsible for each layer. That's not uncommon in most corporate environments and everything. And uh, it's a way for the respective layer builders to um, test only their code, and at that point, um, you know, create mock framework for the uh, for the other layers. So that way, they can make sure their code works in an isolated, pristine environment, and everything. And uh, you can actually sum up the problems, you know, to the you know to your own framework. Um, when the MOQ actually ends up getting replaced with the actual layer, and uh, at that point becomes responsible for the you you become responsible for dealing with the other layers as you're actually going through the test routines and everything. And in a general sense, when you're working on um, in a team-based environment, the teams, separate teams, tend to uh, tend to approve um, the testing mechanisms and what's responsible for being tested in the uh, MOQ framework. You know, so for instance, if I'm actually working on the user interface and we've got two tiers underneath me, the data... The data abstraction layer and also the uh, the middle tier, the business processing, and all that kind of stuff. Um, you're going to have two separate teams working on each of those environments, and uh, at that point, um, you will ultimately approve. You know what uh, what's going to be expected from a testing perspective and everything for the database um, as well as the middle tier, and uh, everybody's going to come into this agreement. and the The MOQ is is thought of as a um, the mock framework is is thought of as a contractual Obligation. So you meet the contractual obligation that's provided by this framework. Um, and, and from a testing perspective, at that point you're expected, you know, the deliverables. Um, you know, when it when something breaks, if it's you know not as per the agreed on contract, well, at that point that's when, you know, you you're expected to fix the rel- the layer relative to, you know, to whatever respective area that you're working on. So in, in a general sense. Um, you know that's actually what I've uh, what I've done a lot is try to understanding things from various different perspectives, uh, especially trying to understand creativity, and uh, then cross applying it. You know, so a l- lot of me spending time over in um, Studio City was uh, just trying to understand you know creativity, um, trying to understand you know what what makes a writer write, what makes a a uh, a director direct what makes a producer produce? Why is it people get into the movie industry? And um, one big complaint that I've had is, why are there so many fucking firearms, you know, within movies? Why is there so much violence, you know? It just seems like there's, you know, other things that that could be written and discussed and everything that actually make a show interesting, but... You know, I, I was just more interested in the cur- the quote-unquote creative process and why that, why it appeared at least from my perspective, why the creative process had had broken down um, in Hollywood and why there was so much of this stuff. Well. You know, ultimately what I learned was um, a couple things, you know, and just to, if you look at it from those three perspectives, but what makes somebody um, really, you know, what I consider highly creative in their in their respective field, you know, and you have those, the triple whammy, you know, you've got um, the ability to be able to adapt uh, dynamically to new technology and everything, That's no, that's number one, right? And, um, you know, it seems like those people that are actually working in Hollywood certainly have this capacity. Um, the second one is the ability to be able to innovate and create new material based on this information. And that's definitely questionable because the uh, the whole concept is breaking down. And uh, the goal and desire to, you know, to create new material that doesn't necessarily involve firearms and that kind of stuff on a regular basis um, as a crutch in order to basically make something quote-unquote entertaining, you know, uh, that doesn 't seem to be happening and everything so that 's one one fundamental breakdown you know for me in the production of Hollywood movies and that kind of stuff is it 's all based on you know the whole concept of uh, i, I wouldn 't say all but a lot of it a great deal of it is based on the concept of violence and that kind of stuff and then you have the final one this is actually what I consider the the critical mitigating factor the the biggest risk to Hollywood and to the uh, development of creativity altogether is the simple enjoyment of what they do. So here for me is, is you know, especially spending time over there, I got to see and hear firsthand about these people and about what they did, and what I learned was something really, really intriguing. Most of them don't enjoy it. They look at it like a job. They, in a lot of cases, you know, the writers that I, that I saw writing and everything, um... Most of them were, you know, just doing just as many drugs as I was and everything, and uh, I was unhappy with what I did. Um, most of them were in it not just for the, for the, you know, for the paycheck and everything, you know, but for the rep, the reputation. Um, they were out there to prove themselves. You know, and, and to some degree, you know, sure, that reputation does increase your earnings, and as a result, you know, you're able to work on bigger and better things, and yada, yada, yada. So there is a little, you know, reciprocity with that and everything. But, you know, when it comes down to it, it's just like, do you love what you do? Now, I asked a lot of people, if, uh, if you took away income, would you still be doing it? And the answer inevitably was no. They flat out wouldn't be doing it. You know, and me... um, you take away my income, and yeah, I still develop, not necessarily on a regular basis, but I do it on occasion and everything. It's not something I hate, you know, as much as I did it. I did it one time. I hated it because I was expected to do it, and I was expected to do the same shit over and over again, and that's actually what got really boring. You know, and, uh, and to some degree, it was just like everybody had a fire that they needed to put out, and I was a firefighter. You know, that's what it felt like, and I just got tired of it. You know, and part of the reason I got tired of it was the, the lack of creativity. You know, the lack of um, the lack of what I considered uh, clear and obvious um, desire to do what, what they were doing. I didn't work with a whole lot of people that, uh, and unfortunately, those people that I did know that enjoyed what they did, um, you know, we worked as much together as we possibly could but it just wasn't that way all the time so you know for me it's just um you know part of a part of work you know uh, for me doesn't involve work so and when it comes down to you know cross applying the lessons that I learned from IT they are pretty much standard across the board you know um, the ability to be creative isn't just about being creative alone it's being able to create new content that branches from the ad- adaptations that actually happen and make it your own. It's, it's also, and this is absolutely essential, loving what you do. Creativity alone you know, can be calculated to some degree. But that calculation has a tendency to break down when you don't love what you do. But how do you determine if you love what you do? And you take away money from the equation, you know. You look real hard, you know, and ask yourself, "Would I do be doing this if it if it wasn't for the money?" Well. So, anyways, um, getting into the uh, to the analogies, um, I just opened up a. Uh, I'm trying to think of new and creative ideas for hacking. Um, I've been loving Watch Dogs too, and I've got a a little. Uh, um, video up. I've been watching Zero Memory, uh, is the name of the um, the hacker, and uh, he's got quite a few videos up on YouTube. And I just started watching another new one. It's called C-C++ Memory Hacking. Powerful virus overwrite MBR, and MBR's the boot record. And uh, what I'm more interested in doing isn't necessarily getting into the nitty-gritty bit twiddling bullshit and everything that he's doing, but understanding it, uh, what he's doing, and not only that, but take it to the next level. And also think about practical ways that I can actually leverage these things uh, to, make, to make my life more fun, you know, and more engaging. Not only that, but, you know, how is it I can actually take hacking and, and you know, do things with it that I've never seen done before? So I'm going to go through a little bit of an exercise right here um, after that long dis- discussion about creativity and apply those three, you know, rules. A, I have to love it. You know, B, it has to make it my own, which A and B at this point do go hand in hand. And C, I have to leverage the adaptation. The adaptation is taking something from a, a magic deck, a magic card deck, and uh, at that point turning it into a hacking concept. Um, and at that point making it my own. So, I just got myself a pack um, of virtual, digital cards. And uh, digital cards each, um, if you're not familiar with Magic, Magic has five different colors that's associated with it. Um, Each of these colors is uh, based on, it's either fire, earth, air, um, fire, earth, air, (laughs) uh, water, the primary elements combined with death so there's a so death is black um water's uh, blue um Air is white, uh, green is earth, and red is uh, fire. And uh, magic is, is based on you know the whole concept that you have a certain amount of life, um, your opponent has a certain amount of life, and the goal, um, if you're playing competitively at least, is to diminish the, the other person's life down to nothing. That's one method of playing. Um, I've since looked up and found out that there's other methods of playing, and... You know, to some degree, the goal isn't necessarily to finish the game. For some, you know, as fast as possible. For some, is to uh, is to actually try to build up your other your other opponent and everything. And uh, there's cards will actually that will actually do this. So, um, and also build up your defenses. I mean, there's there's different methodologies, but the primary gameplay, at least in our universe, is to diminish your opponent's uh, health down to nothing before they do that to you. And you start off with the the basic game of Magic, of 20 health. So... Each card, there's literally thousands of cards that's associated with this. Each card in itself actually has a, a different uh, a different cost that's associated with it. It's a, called a mana cost. Um, and that mana cost is, is uh, you end up paying through something called lands. You get lands. Um, in, a, in some cases, they're referred to differently. There's gateways. There's different types of lands, but they're all considered land cards. And uh, those lands will grant you, generally speaking one um, mana for whatever respective uh, color that you're applying it to for instance I could play a green Isle or a blue island and a blue island um, will grant me uh, I'll go through the process of tapping one blue mana that I can actually now play a one that actually it's a one cost blue mana creature or spell or or artifact or whatever there's any number of different cards I can play based on it. Um, You also have something called artifacts, like I was just about to say, and uh, artifacts don't have an associated color with it, but they do have an associated monocost, so you can actually play anything for any monocost with it that you want to. So, And, uh, you know, as would be expected in a game like this, the higher the monocost, generally speaking, the the more powerful the spell and or... um, and or creature and or whatever it is that you're playing is anticipated to be in everything. So it's, uh, so the low-cost ones, generally speaking, they aren't going to be doing too much of anything, um, but the higher-cost things are definitely going to be a little bit more lethal and everything. So that's, that's the game in a very, very simplistic nutshell and everything. So right now I'm just going to go through some cards and explain you know, some of the card concepts and everything. So for instance, um, I just got eight brand new cards. Um, I play this game on a daily basis on the internet, and uh, there's something called Magic the Gathering Online. And uh, I, I make it a fact to participate in, in every um, daily challenge that they have. You know, it's my way of feeling like I'm progressing in life and the world and everything, and also... Um, You know, just basically keeping myself active intellectually somewhat. And uh, that's what a part of this exercise is is as well, is to keep my mind engaged and and thinking in different ways and that kind of stuff. Atrophy of the mind doesn't sound too interesting to me. So, anyways... um, with this I ended up getting um, one of the challenges um, had me finish the uh, quest of uh, uh, basically winning 15 games and uh, that actually I did over a period of three days so I won five games each day and uh, at that point uh, it awarded me with a DECA pack of cards and a pack uh, consists of eight different cards and everything now, one of them is a wild card and it's uh, something called a common wild card um, there's different levels of cards uh, generally speaking and it, it's based on the card's um, rareness and also the cards uh, the quality of the card so you could have a low quality card also referred to as a, as a common card and uh, you might basically play it for it's a one one cost mana, uh, and it's just basically a one attack, one defense, uh, one, a standard, very standard card. Um, but you could have, some, there's something called uncommons, or something called rares, and there, there's a, a something called really rare, or what, I can't remember what it was. So you got rare, and then uncommon, and then mythical rare. I think that's what it's called. Um, And uh, the mythical rares, you know, you rarely get those wild cards and everything. The common, the uncommon. I just got a common wild card, which is common not unusual and everything that allows me to buy cards leveraging this as a replacement so it says redeem this wild card for any common card by adding this the uh, desired card to your deck so anyways um just to cover the seven other cards that I got here I'm gonna do an analogy for each and uh, the goal is um, I'm I'm making watchdogs 5 but I'm making it in my mind first and the goal is to translate this to C and C++ code and that's actually why I'm paying attention to some of the memory hacking and capabilities capabilities here um, by a wonderful guy, you know, like Zero Memory. The guy is phenomenal at what he does. I like the idea of learning, you know, from that perspective and everything. And how is that I can apply this to a video game and uh, and make it so where, you know, it's it's basically a game by ha- by a hacker for hackers. Um, but I'm trying to be creative in everything with what I do. So... You know, if I was to actually recruit hackers out there, the the primary goal is to make people's lives more fun, more entertaining, and not only that, but also try to help them out, you know? If, um, you know, I mean, for me, like, one of my goals would be, you know, to, you know, let's say I I know that somebody's having a hard time financially and everything, boom, you know, um, they end up getting a, you know, an unexpected gift of $200, you know, because of uh, a problem that occurred with their bank account and everything you know, um, I'll make it appear like it's not a hack, ever, you know, that's the goal, you know, is to basically make it so where I can, you know, let this um, not exist and not be perceived by the public as a hack, but instead let the public perceive it, you know, as, um, you know, as mysterious errors that occur, you know, within the organizations and the organization or the respective different places that they work with and everything. You know, now the goal isn't necessarily to make these corporations look like shit. So, you know, it's going to be, be a precarious balance. You know, how is it you can actually make companies look good, um, you know, and at the same time also um, help somebody as an individual out? And the and the idea might not necessarily be make it an error. Just basically make it so where, hey, you're the thousandth customer, you get this as a, uh, you know, for you know, or you know, here's a reward you know, um, for X amount of uh, time, you know, in our system or something like that. You know, just basically writing stories, you know, to make it look like they serendipitously got this at the right time and right place and everything when they weren't expecting it. I think that would be fun, you know, so, and uh, especially if it came at at good timing and everything too you know and what that good timing would be i don't fucking know all i know is i like the idea of creating a game around it you know and just basically making it a kind of a fun little world and everything so anyways with that said um here's the seven cards the first one's called blood mist infiltrator it has two regular monocost and a black a single black monocost, three monocost altogether. He is a creature, a vampire, um, which doesn't mean anything. and uh, he's got the power of three uh, for his attack and he's got one health. So what that means is every card, every creature that you play has an attack, um, so he hits that hard. So if you've got 20 health and he hits you for 3 attack, that uh, takes away uh, 3 health and uh, at that point bringing you back down to 17. In order to kill this thing, you have to do 1 damage to it because it has 1 health, and that will remove it from the gameplay and from the board. So whenever Blood Mist Infiltrator attacks, you may sacrifice another creature. If you do, Blood Mist Infiltrator can't be blocked this turn. So, I'm trying to think about this from a hacking perspective. So, let's say... This can be a little bit tougher than anticipated. Let's say you create a virus into another system. You know, this is actually kind of interesting. Because if you think about it, from a virus perspective, there's no reason whatsoever that I, I should have to remove a virus from another machine if I actually want to leverage this. But if I actually create a rule for a specific virus that I create that I might put on, on a couple dozen machines and everything, and I leverage one specific attack from it, Yeah, you know, maybe I have, um, infiltrate, uh, server is part of this. So, the, the server, this would be instead of blood mist infiltrator, it would be server infiltrator. And, uh, whenever I want to go infiltrate a server, just for checks and balances, I would go through and make sure that, uh, I can, I can make sure I can remove a virus installed off of another machine, just to make life a little bit interesting and weird for this, you know? (laughs) Somebody analyzing it would be, why did it disappear? See, and that's the thing, is is to get people to ask questions. So when it attacked a server, it would specifically, yeah, that's it. It would specifically, no, not take a virus off another machine. It would specifically remove itself from the machine that it was on to migrate to the other server. So that's what I could do. Whenever Blood Mist Infiltrator attacks, you may sacrifice another creature. So in this case it may it can sacrifice itself and if it does. Well in theory if I controlled the uh... the entire environment including the firewall it would bypass the firewall so i can use this to circumvent the firewall itself so blood mist infiltrator can't be blocked this turn but this isn't you know that's i'm not doing it as per the so the goal is to actually analogize it directly to this card so let's say I've got two systems, system A and system B, and they're attacking system C, which is a server. Now, system A goes to initiate an attack against system system C. Now, system A would more or less sacrifice the copy of the code that's on system B in order to in order to. Uh, basically bypass the entire firewall and make it to system C. That's how this would work. Yeah, I mean, it's an easy analogy. You know, it's probably a lazy one, too. But, it's kinda boring. And it really doesn't make sense. I mean, clearly, as a virus creator, you this wouldn't be an optimal way of creating it. But those that are actually trying to figure out why the fuck it's doing what it's doing, that could actually be even more fun, though. Why the fuck is this virus killing the other virus? Or what's it doing when it's notifying the other virus and the other virus shuts down? Well, I mean, it's following the rule. The rule: Whenever whenever virus uh, attacks, I, I sacrifice that other virus, and it, when I do that, It'll actually make it so where I can bypass the firewall. <laughs> that kind of cracks me the fuck up. <laughs> uh, I'm actually gonna write that one down. That's kind of funny. Uh, here's the thing. I'm trying to. I'm trying to think of different ways to implement. Uh, I mean, the thing from a computer, rationality perspective, when you're implementing a virus like that, I mean, if you've got penetration on several different systems and everything, um, and you've got the capability to, you know, initiate contact with the server and everything, generally speaking, you're not going to want to eliminate the other things in order to access that. But this tosses it up. I mean, what is the sense in implementing a rule like this? Well, there isn't any, really. You know, other than just to follow the analog of uh, of the analogy of um, (laughs) we're following magic cards here. So, whenever a blood mist infiltrator virus attacks a server, And why I'm saying server, specifically, is, um... Yeah, why I'm saying server is, uh, whenever it attacks, you're always attacking the other player. So, and somebody can block it, and, uh, that blocking would be the analogy of a firewall. So, whenever a... A blood mist infiltrator virus attacks a server by sacrificing another machine's instance of blood mist Now it doesn't even so by sacrificing another by another machine's installation This bypasses the firewall. (laughs) Oh, that kind of cracks me up! Attacks the server by sacrificing another machine, uh, another virus, by removing, let's call it sacrifice, another virus installed on another machine. This bypasses the firewall. I like it. That's great. Okay. I'm gonna write all these down. So based on based on blood mist infiltrator. Okay. Uh, so next one, benthic biomancer. Yeah, I just might do start doing this with a uh, every time I receive a new deck. Benthic Biomancer. And apply it to different things. Okay, so this one has Adapt. Adapt is if this creature has no plus one plus one counters on it, put a plus one plus one counter on it. So it just means it makes it stronger and more powerful. So, Adapt 1 only costs one mana. Whenever one or more plus one plus one counters are put on Benthic Biomancer, Draw a card, then discard a card. So... How does a virus become stronger? Oh. It becomes immune. Huh, this one's a hard one. Whenever one or more plus one plus one counters are put on a benthic biomancer, draw a card, then discount a card. So there's two functions that it's doing here. One is it's adapting if you pay a certain cost now one of the concepts within watchdogs is resources you can actually leverage computing resources you know from smartphones from um, different uh... different types of systems and everything and those um, allow you the capability to be able to run certain exploits and you're always expected to work within scarcity um, and uh... and more or less, do what you're doing and everything based on this this whole concept of of contrived scarcity. So you, you've you're at all times left with a um, and that's kind of interesting. You know, if if I actually start thinking about uh, computing resources themselves, despite the fact that there's an almost limitless amount of computing resources out there um, to be able to achieve things, the simple fact of the matter is. If you introduce um, artificial scarcity, it forces you to program differently. So in this case here, whenever a plus one plus one counts, so uh, the first one is adapt one. So that basically makes the, cre- the creature a little bit stronger. Now thinking about this from a virus perspective. Huh. That's really tough. Okay, so I'm gonna write this down. Adapt one. And Plus one, plus one. Okay, so I'm going to be doing this within the Watchdogs framework. <clears throat> Actually, that's a better way to think about this from. rather than implement this on, yeah, okay, so I'm going to go back to the first one. Based on Blood Mist Infiltrator, so let's say I'm, my target's for hacking. I'm also in, going to include other systems and everything, so we can actually target systems. Yeah, that's going to be the difference, so you can't, uh, you can target, um, So I'm gonna add add in the ability to hack servers and computers. So rather than this this game being follower based, instead because the expectation is you're going to install an application, and while that works decently and everything in this, um, I'm going to make you work a little bit more to basically, you're going to be installing things on servers and systems, and that will remain there too throughout the game and everything. So you will be building up your presence and everything as you play this game, and uh, you're going to be leveraging... A permutation of what's in Watch Dogs Two, to be able to achieve this. So right now you gain resources. You got two different types of resources in Watch Dogs Two, and that's the ability to be able to hack a system. Um, and then, hold on a second. I'm a, I've got a recipe that I'm making tonight. Let me see how long it's supposed to take to make. Okay, Um, I'll, I'm gonna be back. I want to start this thing real quick, so... Okay, I've returned. So... Yeah, the mistake I was making before was actually translating this to the real world. And from a hacking perspective, hacking inside the real world versus hacking in a game would be entirely different. So you know, the resources that you have at your disposal and everything, you know, once you perform the hacks, it, uh... there's really, I mean, sure, there's a limitation, you know, of resources, but there's so many resources out there that uh, there, you know, really isn't a limitation on it. So, instead I've got to think about this from a playability perspective. How is it I can actually create this in a game? and uh, in particular, under the Watch Dogs 2 framework, which I've thoroughly enjoyed. So, this requires me to go back to the original card, and one of the first things that I would change with the new version of watchdogs would be the ability to be able to hack servers and computer systems and let those connections persist throughout the game so as you actively do this you're gaining resources and uh, yeah that could actually be a a big part of it is you you spend a lot of your time grinding if you want to want to think about it like that um, building up hacking uh, hacking servers and computers and that way you can actually Leverage these um, in a framework that uh, you use one in order to, you know, increase your capabilities and everything, your resources. So, for the first, for instance, the first one based on the Blood Mist infiltrator. If I was to implement this inside of a watchdogs 2 game, um, whenever a Blood Mist uh, let's let's just refer to the Blood Mist infiltrator as a virus, that's uh, persistent on a machine. Now, whenever I want to go attack a non-server resource, um, it can proliferate all I want to and everything. I can keep on installing it on as many machines as I want to. Um, But, you know, whenever I want to, uh, to actually go hack a server, um, now, at this point, once I want to go hack a server, that server, I would have to sacrifice one of those computing resources. So, maybe you spend a great deal of the time hacking computer resources, but servers are rare, and uh, when you do find one, you've got to sacrifice a resource in order to uh, basically make it so you can hack that hack that server. So, um, that, that can actually uh, be a key here. So. As you're attacking computers, you can put Blood Mist Infiltrator on any system that you want to, but uh, you have to sacrifice a computer or server installation of the Blood Mist Infiltrator virus in order to proliferate it to a, to a server and not be blocked by the firewall and potentially lose out. So, this also would require thinking about viruses. Let's entertain that thought. A virus is a one-time installation and requires manual, manual, hands-on to proliferate. So you can't have it do an automated proliferation, you actually have to uh, pro- proliferate it yourself. So, basically the rule for the framework is a virus is a one-time installation that you're going to achieve on a certain computer or server system um, that you have to manually do yourself, and uh, it requires hands-on to proliferate to other systems and everything. So you have to physically execute the hack yourself in order to, uh, to achieve the end result of actually having an installation on this, but in order for you to be able to um, leverage this uh, feature of the uh, Blood Mist Infiltrator virus. Um, yeah, that, that's it. The Blood Mist Infiltrator Infiltrator is a virus and lets you attack a server without being in and bypassing and bypassing its firewall. Now how this is implemented is easy. Through energy. So that's that would be the goal here. So this virus is a is a code based virus in itself. But it can completely skip over the firewall through energy and proliferate itself, and and hit that target server, bypassing the firewall altogether, so the firewall never even sees it. And it does this by uh, when you sacrifice that virus on another system, so it's just a part of the rule for this virus. So, blood. Now, if you're looking at this from a physical machine perspective, it won't make sense. But if you're looking at this as a rule enforced by energy itself, and the energy itself requires, so it, it, it's a hands on, a hands on virus tool. lets you attack a server bypassing its firewall altogether altogether. So whenever blood mis- virus attacks a server, Yeah, so that's the goal, is is it itself is specifically a server-based infiltration virus. So whenever a blood misinfiltrator virus attacks a server by sacrificing another another virus of the same name, now installed on another machine, another, uh, let's say, by sacrificing another hands-on-based virus, installed on another machine, this bypasses the firewall altogether. Perfect. I like that. Okay, so the next one. The Benthic Biomancer. Whenever one or more plus one, plus one counters are put on Benthic uh, Biomancer, draw a card, then discard a card. Now, the tougher thing to to do is the health and attack. I don't know if I actually want to implement this. Maybe that's what I gotta do. <clears throat> there three slash one three attack. Yeah. Slash one health virus. Okay. So I'm noodling on a concept right now. Um it basically says this is a three-attack, one-health virus. So I'm noodling on a concept that all all targets um, have a a specific um, a specifically associated difficulty level, and. Um, This will let you pull in resources together. So you can actually attack one server and everything with multiple different viruses and stack their their attack in order to attack the same resource. I like that. But its health and defending against it How do I implement the health? By the firewall? Potentially. Defends against the health. Okay. Um, so the benthic Biomancer, again, this one is adapt1. So it starts off as a 1-1. One, one. Whenever one or more plus one, plus one counters are put on, so it adapts one. So computers are different resource types. Thank you. Different resource types and can be tapped to perform hacks. <laughs> That's kind of funny. Yeah, so each computer that uh, that we have within our uh, our framework and everything can be tapped to perform different attacks, different hacks, and uh, those hacks are one-time only based. So let's say you have 15, 20 different computers and everything that you're actually using to um, hack one certain thing. So whenever you have and you can tap this. Yeah, but what defines the longevity of an attack? So that's a question. What defines the longevity of an adaptation of of a tap? Chronology? Yeah, that's actually what I think I should do, is implement chronology in this. So Benthic Bith- Biomancer and all these things that actually tap lands and everything, um, the tapping on this, what I might do is just implement a chronology and have they uh, have a decay on a tap. So if you tap something, um, it becomes available as a resource and everything within X amount of time. So when you tap something, it becomes available after X amount of time. So I'm gonna to have to play with the X amount of time, so something will remain tapped. Now, what defines the different colors for taps? So if something is black. Black equals red equals green equals white equals blue equals. Yeah, because this will actually reinforce the necessity to create different types of companies. Air companies. I like that. Air and related companies. Ooh, beautiful companies. Green is earth and related companies. Fire and related companies. And black is space and related companies. Blue is water and related companies. So every company will be at least one mana color type. Okay, so that's actually kind of cool. So that means like NASA. NASA would be a black space and related company. Um, Red? What would red be? NASA, for instance. Space and digital. So black is space and digitally related companies. And digital companies. Let's say, digitally based. Nance for instance, or who else could be a digital company? Who would be a digital, for instance? Microsoft. So Red, who would Red be? Red Fire Companies, JPL. Jet Propulsion Laboratory is what they, that stands for. Laboratory. They work specific, specifically with the uh, engines. And more obviously, um, Oh, who would be another one? Oh, solar companies. Earth is fire. So, earth and related companies. (laughs) Greenpeace, for example. Um... Sarko. is a mining company. I actually did business with them a while ago. White, Cessna, airplanes, and let's just say Boeing. These are two obvious ones for air-based. Um, actually, who, and whoever creates a windmill manufacturers. Cessna, slash Boeing, and Windmill Manufacturers, i.e., okay, blue, Yacht Manufacturers, and who, what else would be a blue? Another example of a blue. Oh, shipping, shipping companies. So the obvious goal here is to try to find which color something aligns the most with. Um, Each one can be thought of as technology companies, but you know to basically say its primary industry and/or method of. you know, without water, you know, a shipping company. Um sure they can use air, but uh, generally um freight boat shipping companies let's be specific on that. Yacht manufacturers without water you wouldn't have yachts. You know, same thing holds true for you know, for uh, Cessna and Boeing, you know, you wouldn't have companies um, called Cessna and Boeing or they'd be in entirely different industries without uh, without air. Same thing for a windmill manufacturer. You wouldn't have windmills if you didn't have, you know, air. So, generally speaking, white is related to air. Um, the green, Sarco's a mining company. Without uh, earth, you wouldn't have a mining company. So, um, and earth is related to green type stuff and everything. Um, you can also lump in... Um what is it, uh wood manufacturers. So wood manufacturers, uh so, you know, that have to leverage wood and log logs and that kind of stuff. So clearly they're not using um, you know, the primary thing that they're using, you know, could be thought of with these things. So in black, digital, you know, and space. Both of them are thought of it to be black. So that just seems like a good lump sum. Then there's a colorless, which might be unclassified equals unclassified. Um so now we get into adapt. So benthic biomes or whatever one or one one or more plus one plus one counters Draw a card, then discard a card. So, what can be the equivalent of a a card? What is a card? What is a card? So if you take it directly, carding and hacking, termed as traffic trafficking of credit card, bank account, another. Ooh, ooh, I like that idea. credit cards, or anything. So we're gonna say a card is anything anonymizing the financial origin of a transaction. So carding, at least in hacking terms, is a term described the trafficking of a credit card, bank account, and other personal information, um, which is basically a place to draw resources from. And you've got credit cards or anything anonymizing the financial origin and source of a transaction. So, for this one here, whenever plus one, draw a card. Now, how is it I can actually make the, these unique, though? I think I'm going to have to reframe carding. Because the immediate thing that comes to mind with carding is, um, that each one would be associated with a certain dollar amount on the transactions and everything. And, um, I don't like that idea. To think about this one is the modern day way of looking at cards. Associated dollar amount. So here's and here's the why. Um, whenever one or more plus one plus one counters are put on Benthic Bio-Mencer, um let's say you don't have any cards, you know. Um, Let's just put this in the traditional form: credit cards and everything. Or let's say you've got, you know, five thousand of them. Um, you don't care which ones you're discarding; you just keep them and you collect them, just to throw them away and everything. Whenever you you come across this a card like this and that rule, so you know, having I need a way to be able to manage the amount of whatever the card is a reference to and, um, in a sense, have scarcity for the number of cards that could be maintained at the same time. Need a sense of creating scarcity for whatever computing Resource is regarded as a card, which I don't know which one it is. Need a sense of creating scarcity for whatever computer. Limit this at seven, just to implement the rules from magic. So, this leaves the open question for this adaptation here. Um, And the adaptation simply just takes it from a 1-1 one, one, to a 2-2, two, two, to a 3-3, three, three, and so on, and it leverages 1-n, and, and I'm going to come up with a notation here. So 1-b, and adapt one and one B, one C, one bear. So one color is one blue. Uh, the first one, I'm going to mark down two, and so these are the resources that it's requiring, and it's going to be a two C, one B. Okay. So off to the third one. Consecrate, exile target card from a graveyard. Ooh. That's actually what I'm gonna do, is I'm gonna relate this to energy. You know what I'm gonna do? Each one of these viruses is going to be... have have an energy-based component to it. Exile target card from a graveyard. So, what is a graveyard? Okay, I just came up with an idea. So the idea is this new hacker in Watch Dogs Dogs 5 discovers that there are natural mechanisms in place that actually limit, um, that uh, provide a greater form of hacking, but to some degree limits the playability because it's based on resources that are actually intertwined to energy. So as this hacker discovers this, he starts discovering that with these, um, with the, the correlation of this two energy, the overall lack of resources requires hacking to, to be performed a little bit differently than, than what, what had happened before. So if you have a virus, it's a single-use virus so we're gonna have single-use viruses which are discarded into which are consumed on use. When it's consumed, when it's consumed, it goes into the consumed pile <laughs> into the garbage collection and you got specific things that you can do to obtain it from the garbage collection So consecrate, or forever be deleted. So consecrate, which is a one colorless, one black or white card, Exiles target card, Exiles, and Consume, two colorless, one black, one white, Instant Consecrate, Consecrate. Draws a card. Exiles. Target card from graveyard. Consume. Sorcery. Consume. target server disables so what the Consume says is sorcery. Target player sacrifices a creature with the greatest power among creatures they control. You gain life equal to its its power. So the consume instead all servers. All servers will have zero to N associated computers. Where draws its power from. So the server disables one of those computers permanently. And the hacker gains resources, temporary resources that decay. Okay, there we go. And what I mean by that is, um, in consume, target player sacrifices a creature. Now, since you don't have a life total as a uh, as a hacker slash player, and I don't want you to have to work with your physical life and everything, and that's associated to this, um, I don't want the computing ties to the physical body and everything. I know that would be a pure way of implementing this, particularly when it comes down to energy, but um, I just don't like the idea. But uh, anyways, um, you gain hacking resources. So, basically, it bumps up your power uh, to be able to make an attack and leverage that machine that, uh, that, that's being sacrificed by that server um, to basically commit the attack. So, and it also permanently, after the attack, it permanently takes that computer offline and everything. So, in any case, that's one way of doing it. Uh, that's just a thought. All servers will have zero to n-associated computers, which is where it's draw- it draws its power from. So, uh, Sphinx's Insight is the ne- next one. Draw two cards, and that one's two colorless, one white, one blue. And uh, this one's draw two cards, two cards, an addendum. Spell has an additional effect if you cast it during your main phase. Hmm. so it draws two cards and you gain two life draws two cards and if you cast if you use this first attack then you gain two extra resources to use for the attack. So you can hack bigger and better computers that way. The Feral Maka. Feral Maka. Um. Yeah. Creature slash cat. I'm gonna keep that in there. Um, I didn't do it with the first one. Let's go back to that creature vampire. And the other one, the benthic biomancer, is a m- creature merfolk wizard mutant. So the Feral Maka, he's a one colorless one red, and he's just a two two. So he just helps with a planning an attack and everything. The Sylvan Brush he's a creature beast. There's a two colorless, one green, and there's a battlefield, you gain two life. Two life. Temporary computing resources for this attack. Okay. Bring to trial. That is. To trial. Wow. Sorcery. Exile and target creature with power four or greater. So. Yeah, so that's what I'm gonna do, is basically treat creatures like computers. Every every server that you're trying to access and everything helps you with this. So now the goal is, how is it I'm actually going to make it so you can't overpower? Oh, all hacks are temporary, that's right. All hacks are timed. and decay anyways um... yeah, that's it. he seven cards and that took an hour and forty minutes Clearly I've got some things to work out here. You know, so the whole concept is I'm actually going to be leveraging energy as an additional method of uh, distribution. So right now, um, electrical hacking and everything, electronic hacking, is basically digitally based. So, you know, you can actually hack a computer, you know, here, um, you know, anywhere you want to in the world and everything, and it goes through TCPIP, through known digital channels and that kind of stuff. but um, what I'm adding is another layer to the hacking, and uh, just basically saying, hey, you know, hacking occurs in two different places. First off, you have the uh, the T C P I P based equivalent and everything, or, you know, we'll call it the protocol layer. It's it's the communications. It's more or less like me talking to you, you know, in English, and um, to you, you know, you're receiving it in whatever language that you're receiving it as. And, um this, this is more or less equivalent, if you want to do the, draw the analogy and everything, to um, talking in the English language uh, to TCPIP. Um, well, a little bit. TCPIP is a protocol layer. Um, let's just say um, it, it's more equivalent to me talking in http so my voice is actually being transformed to you via http or be it um, pop which is post office protocol or smtp Sim- simple mail transport protocol or ftp the, the english is more or less the equivalent of these protocols and underlying that is the waveform um or in this case here it's the digital being transformed to a waveform and that waveform is being received by you to be able to listen to through your ears and vice versa I'm actually hearing you know my own voice through something called a waveform and that waveform is actually providing information that's provided in English and everything to create this feedback loop and the stimulation so um, the, the goal here is to basically say hey TCP is one level of communication and everything um, one level of hacking and everything but there's also another level of hacking that that's actually at the underlying level level um, of energy. Now, you have to have rules in place, and um, you know, the physical rules of, of matter and energy and everything dictated by um, by Einstein and everything, permit basically anything. Anything is fucking possible, you know. Um, there are no limitations and everything, so what I'm doing is implementing a rule set structure based on the devices that are being used at the computing level in order to basically, per, you know, create hacks, not only that, but create um, controlled um, scarcity within um, within energy when you're doing hacks, you know if you don't impose scarcity at this level, well, basically anything is fucking hack- hackable, and uh, at that point it makes it really hard to code games if you can get in with any number of resources that you want to, you know, within, you know, and that's what Watch Dogs 2 does is it it creates a really interesting framework which you know, basically says, hey, what if we actually think about hacking Is, you know, um, well, sure, they've got all these things, and they call them, you know, program script kitties, um, you know, how they're doing their hacking and everything through TCPIP. However, there's a definite limitation, and that's what I'm actually trying to do. I'm trying to bump up the amount of options that are made available. Um, without working in the same constraints that they are at least from a game programming perspective by basically implementing a set of rules here and uh, taking those rules and permuting them from um, you know from uh, this game and th- or from uh, this game called magic so anyways um, that's it for now uh, next time I get a deck i'll uh, I'll go through the same process thanks for listening back when I was growing up 19 uh, 1980s there was a um, a common problem that ended up happening with, um, with te- the analog television sets, the ones that received the VHF and the UHS signals, and the problem was ghosting. And uh, what a ghost is, if you're not familiar with the term and everything, is uh, digital images are pretty clear, uh, very concise and everything. You, you get one image and it's crystal clear, and um, with ghosting, there's a, a time delay And that's actually superimposed on the image in itself. And what this means is you'll actually see uh, more or less the signal not coming in, or it'll come in um, displaced from its position. And uh, you'll get a couple of the signals all together, which basically looks like you're taking quite a few digital images and everything and trying to stitch them together to create one image. And, uh, in effect, it creates this blurry, ghost-like image, which can be really fucking irritating. And uh, that's actually what I consider the benefit of, di- of digital technology, is you can actually see the image, you know, the intended image and everything, that, that uh, you know, rather than the analog. Well... I've come since to actually, you know, analyze some of the things that I observed when I was growing up and everything, and that was one of the things that I really started asking the question of, you know. So, let's say, um, Really, what the question is, what is that echo? You know, what is ghosting? And, um, I know, this is a long podcast today. Apparently, I'm feeling Gabby. But, uh, what is ghosting? Television. If you look up um, the definition, it says is often caused when a TV signal travels by two different paths to a receiving an antenna with a slightly slight difference in timing. Now, one of the things I've noticed, you know, with with this, is the images weren't always consistent. You know, it was very rare that I would catch that. Uh, you know, that the image itself was was a you know the ghost itself was not one and the same as the original image you know but i noticed that there was a little bit of you know blurriness to it it was like um the ghost itself it wasn't just temporally displaced as it's described here there was actually differences between that and you know the other images in some cases you know, it could be color, it could be um, blurriness, it could be any number of different things. Now, if if it's just simply a matter of timing, um, that might answer. So here's, here really came down to, you know, the question to me. Um, if I started answering right now, you know, with it, and let's say I was in a matrix before, um, or that reality itself is a holographic universe, which, you know, for me, that that's optimal that's what i choose to believe that's what i want to believe i like the idea of programming my reality and um, how would i explain ghosting well inside of that well you know in the analog um well what's perceived as the analog from a personal individual perspective and everything uh you you see a world that uh you know the the ghosting effects might happen through glitches that stick you know so basically reality itself is is a collective combined with the, the assertion of the individual and desire of the individual. Um, and sometimes there could be glitchy effects where the individual um, asserts itself and causes a glitchy effect. And this you know can be seen with Neo and the Matrix when it comes down to um, seeing a black cat um, Glitches for me, I've actually perceived uh, several of them over the last couple years and everything. One glitch, for instance, is uh, just happened today, as a matter of fact, where, um, I don't know if you could call it a glitch or anything like that, but Hobby Lobby, uh, I saw it driving over to uh, uh, the EBT, the food stamp office and everything, about um, three or four weeks ago. Maybe a little bit more, you know, with my brother. And, um... It's you know we ended up looking up the directions for it on online and it's not there. Well, is this a glitch? No, not really. What it means is um, the digital information sources aren't necessarily in conformity with the analog reality. That's that I'm saying. And um, what's happened over the last seven years and everything is an increasing awareness by myself. Um, that there is a difference between the collective uh collective community, you know, that's provided on the internet versus the individual perception and uh, world that I'm living in. And as a result, um, the priority, at least for now, does appear to basically give the uh, collective community um, precedence for the formation of my reality. And as a result, I do not doubt that I'm not going to be able to see it, you know, when I go out and everything. However, there stands another chance, you know, that uh, me voicing this out loud and everything, that um, we're going to see news over the next couple weeks and everything that they're opening up a new location in Vancouver, Washington, you know, for this place called Hobby Lobby. And um, that's, in effect, you know, an explanation from a first-person perspective what ghosting is. Now, from a third-person perspective, watching an analog TV, you know, and asking the question, what is ghosting? Well, ghosting is nothing more than a bleed-over from a couple, you know, from several different realities. Um, That are adjacent in the multiverse, you know, several different realities showing the same show that uh, are depicting the events that are occurring, you know, in alternate realities that appear to be the same as mine. Now, on occasion, you know, this uh, this doesn't always conform and everything, and uh, doesn't always work. You know, this perception and everything, and um, on occasion, you see in in quote unquote fictional worlds and everything, different versions of different shows be demonstrating what the mind does. In order to basically preserve the idea of a single linear reality shared by everybody, you know, and you see this um these various uh, different um, deviations of a TV show in alternate realities in uh, things like Star Trek um, they had an Enterprise show where they actually showed a different opening screen um, for the uh, the Enterprise show I think it was in season three or something like that and it was a remarkably different intro the Mirror Universe is just one example of uh, you know. The awareness, you know, from a, a personal perspective and everything, you know, that there are other universes out there, and that was more of a dualistic idea and mindset and everything. Um, Friends had an episode that uh, existed in alternate reality one time where Monica was fat, and um, there was just a whole. Every every character was roughly the same, but each one was different. Not only that, but the intro theme was altogether different. Um, You know, and that's actually one thing I've actively questioned, too. You know, if I was to actually start going to different realities, um, you know, knowing and believing that the shows in my reality are programs that work with the intention of programming the individuals in those they're actually observing that reality to maintain that reality. When I go to another reality, um, what programs are actually going to be viewed through those realities? Well, I get a little hint of that, you know, with Grand Theft Auto. As I watch, you know, TV-based programs in that reality, and I'm just like, wow, that's actually kind of cool, you know, seeing some of the things in there, you know, and it's more of a violent uh, reality, but it's a highly highly Sexualized reality too, you know. That's uh, just like you know. Between the two, you know, that's you know to some degree maintains the course and trajectory of that reality and everything. You know, so that's actually the the question that I have too is you know, let's let's propose that um, that there are more or less you know a finite set of of alternate realities that are based on you know this version or that that are roughly similar to this Earth, and that finite set you know of realities um you know has has differences you know some you know some remarkable but some subtle let's just say there's differences in attitudes and social mores. let's say there's differences in, you know acceptance of you know maybe one has um you know i've gone here before and talked about this before you know one um where nobody wears any clothes another one where um, you know, let's say the idea of guns and violence and everything is completely gone, you know. Um, and not only that, but they're they're not even allowed. You know, maybe um the idea of uh, of all the of basically anything, you know, with physical weapons and everything, physical weapon based violence has completely been eradicated and everything from all media. Um you know, um, varying different realities and everything that, uh, you know, let's, let's you know, you can take it as, as something as simple as historical deviations or anything, but this doesn't necessarily cause a cultural mindset shift. You know, but let's say there's cultural mindset shifts in between reality you know, so not only are there historical deviations, um, maybe you can actually create the excuse uh, that it's actually created through a historical deviation, you know, that the media alteration in between realities is due to um, historical pivot points, you know, that have actually been changed over time that actually cause the uh, creation of this alternate reality. For instance, uh, let's say, um, you know, back in uh, when JFK is actually shot by Lee Harvey Oswald, let's say there's an alternate version of uh, of reality where guns have literally been outlawed, you know. So not only are um, our weapons themselves completely stricken from all media, you know, but um, they're also stricken from the use of uh, by public police officers and by any private individuals at all, even collectors and everything. It's it's in a literal sense been eradicated. Well, so what um, you know culturally, this is going to cause a pretty dramatic mind shift change, right? You know, it'd be suspected. You know, and this is one historical deviation that you. Can actually trace out to try to figure out hey what what could likely happen given the historical mindset of the time and everything and uh, where would reality go now that's one possibility for creating the alternative uh alternative shows but here comes the golden question um, once you cause this 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 excuse to happen, you know, for that, and you eradicate weapons from the pub, pub, public population, without trying to directly steer people, other than the the complete eradication of uh, firearms from media and everything, um, what happens with the public persona in, in the culture? You know, um, does it shift? Does it change? You know, that's that's a question I would have. You know, um, and not only that. But let's say that the media or that the public actually embraced this media and everything, and uh, they ended up furthering it and continuing it and just basically maintaining the status quo and actually keep on doing this and everything. Um, what new forms of uh, what other forms of entertainment are they going to have? You know, um, let's say there's also you know an implied um, dismissal and eradication of violence on TV as well. You know, um, what happens you know to society when you regularly cens- censure you know this information and everything, you know, from uh, public sources and everything. Not only that, but what kind of TV shows are created? Um, now, let's say you introduce the concept of, you know, Friends, you um, and also other shows like this intentionally to basically see what happens with this show. You know, so Friends is introduced and let's say you introduce it in the same time frame over in that reality, but you're making sure that, you know, the initial episodes and everything, creating the trajectory and everything, do not have, um, the same, you know, it has the same characters without hesitation, um, but you write the shows around around, you know, this whole world that doesn't, you know, that gun violence doesn't happen and everything. Not only that, but you don't talk about it. You know, so let's say each one of these shows, let's say big shows, everything from Carol Burnett, you know, where maybe she's a nudist in, in the alternate reality that uh, that depicts, um, you know, that uh, depicts this, this woman, you know, that uh, she's more or less, you know, you pl- place this media in this alternate reality, and maybe you generate the show specifically for you know to maintain course for this you know and um, at that point you know you 've got a Carol Burnett for this alternate reality. What other shows are created based on these examples you know of um, of shows that could be written specifically to promote certain viewpoints and everything from you know from a, a more or less a a programming perspective regarding um, the information that comes on television and movies and everything as programs for the minds of those are actually interacting with the world around them. You know, and that's actually, you know, so shifting in between alternate realities, that's what I'm trying to say. You know, um, what what are the variances and everything? Well, for me, you know, that's, that's what, what explains what ghosting is. I'm getting a glimpse into these alternate realities. And not only that, but I'm also seeing the slight deviations, and sometimes sometimes profound deviations, it's actually causing, you know, with the um, literal development Of not just culture but the physical world itself. It's my suspicion that the physical world itself, through the creation of alternate forms of media and everything, even though the media may be be roughly the same as ours, it's my belief that The physical constraints of matter and energy and the rules that guide them can profoundly change based on subtle changes in the material that's produced and everything from a programming perspective for the media that's actually supplied to the public. It's my belief. It's my simple belief. You know, what I'm saying is light, you know, has a different light speed and everything. If there is, you know, um, well, I'm not going to say if there is light, but let's say light actually has a different speed that it moves at in in alternate realities. You know, I found evidence of that already. Um, Let's say sound itself, you know, might have different explanations and everything from a scientific perspective and everything. Let's say the double slit experiment and the the observation of... um, you know, both inter- or light being a particle and a wave at the same time, maybe there's different observations and alternate realities based on the stimulation of, of shows that are created. Not just that, but spinoffs um, and other permutations that are inspired or created by people that are inspired by things that they saw within the media that's actually created that could be positioned there intentionally to maintain the cultural mindset of that world. So, you know, let's say you wanted to create one of these worlds and everything. You know, how I'd personally go about it is basically saying, okay, you know, let's go back to a key pivotal event and everything, and um, let's alter history. (laughs) And it would start with um, something as simple as the Bible. You know, um, let's say you have the capability to be able to traverse time, and at this point, um, you know, take little bits and pieces and everything, starting with the Bible, and alter the Bible in a very subtle way and everything, and just basically remove the part that actually indicates that Adam and Eve covered up and they had any shame. They didn't have any shame they're stark-ass naked and everything now from that point imagine out forward, forward you know draw a timeline forward now key pivotal points and everything throughout that historical timeline and everything you're going to have media that's placed there put intentionally to at that point maintain the mindset so if you're looking at this from a preservationist perspective and everything and the whole goal is to actually preserve each of these realities um, in some cases actually try to create new ones, too, from these deviations, you know, or intentionally created deviations or everything. But let's say, you know, that's the, p- the pivotal starting point and everything for this alternate reality. That, at that point, you create a deviation, and that deviation is just basically a rewriting of that text in the Bible, just to actually omit that one phrase. That's it. You know, now from there, you know, let that be the cultural starting point, the part that actually is there um, intended to reshape the program that's actually received by those people that are actually reading it, and at that point move forward, you know, through time, if you're to actually draw this out on a timeline and everything, and maybe having key other pivotal points, too, such as, um, you know, uh, you know, the development of, uh, the United States of America, you know, um, altogether it was based on puritanical values and everything that traced back its origin to the Bible, and, um, you know, so when it comes down to the whole pagan aspect of its, of the religion, traces back its origin to the Bible, and as a result, it'll actually go through and say, hey, you know, we're interested in, um, building a country and everything, um, based on this, not necessarily communion with God or anything like that, but, you know, based on the values of man, you know, respecting individuality, the, the whole, you know, thing that actually declares the, the creation of the United States to begin with, with one exception. Rather than the right to bear arms, you make an alteration, the right to be bare. <laughs> I mean, it's that simple. <laughs> so from there, rather than the right to actually go to war, you change, you know, the subtext for the Bill of Rights and everything, the right to be bare. It's very simple. It's straightforward. There's no qu- well, I mean, of course, inevitably things will actually come under a scrutiny and everything, you know, but um, at that point you build it on and you keep creating these little traces in history and everything. Maybe, you know, Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proc- Proclamation, you know, required the slaves to actually, uh, you know, to, it, it intentionally puts in there the slaves don't have to wear clothes either. You know, they have the same rights to be bare. Maybe that's a part of a, a rewrite, a part of the story rewrite and everything for each one of these. So what I'm saying is just drop these. You know, they're basically, um, I consider it like um, drops of, of rain on a pond. You know, each one of these drops in specific locations and everything throughout history, particularly the more pivotal points and everything from, you know, from our history and everything. And at this point, once you get to a certain point and everything, boom. You know, the whole goal is to actually create a a shift in entertainment that's actually produced by this alternate reality based on these tiny little changes throughout history to text. You know, the first change would be, obviously, the Bible. The second thing, you know, could be the Declaration of Independence, and, and combined especially with the Bill of Rights. Um, you know, this keeps on going from there, all with the goal of creating um, the mindset you know, that will establish the tipping point to basically creating new media, and maybe that new media starts, you know, um, doesn't really start getting produced, you know, strongly until, let's say, the 1960s and 1970s, in particular, 1970s, you know, with, um, what is it, uh, Debbie Does Dallas, and uh, what's the other one that came out about the same time, Deep Throat. You know, let's say those are the first two that just basically present an alternate reality, and it's just like boom that that actually starts the acceptance of this, you know, and then from there creating different shows, you know, for this alternate reality that are positioned, um, that are based on or they're they're exactly like the shows that exist right now that are popular here. Seinfeld, for instance, you know, just basically rewriting the episodes ever so slightly and everything, to include obvious um, commentary and everything. Um, the look and feel is retained from the original with the exception that it fits to the cultural norms of the society that we're actually trying to reprogram. And the same thing holds true for um, whether or not it's Seinfeld, it's uh, um, cheers, or it's uh, Friends, or it's um, Star Trek, any of the Star Treks for that matter. You know, so you go back to Star Trek. Uh, first one maybe can dabble in it a little bit, but the second one would be Next Next Generation. would be really important to get some of these critical keys in there, um, combined with Deep Space Nine. Not so much, but more Star Trek Voyager especially. You know, and each one of these, uh, from my, my personal perspective and everything, other ones that would be critical to this would be Sliders. You know, having Sliders, a completely different set of uh, Sliders episodes to watch, that would be fucking awesome, is, you know, me finding key realities that I like the overall feel here or I like the ideas and mentality and everything that that exists here, and it's just like, hey, I might kick back and actually just watch TV there, you know, hang out there for a little bit, you know, just basically do what I'm doing here, you know, but hang out there instead. That sounds like fun. You know, that naked reality, absolutely I'd be hanging out literally and figuratively there. Uh, Other places, such as, um, I don't know, you know, that's the whole thing. You know, I I like the idea of discovering some of these places, too. You know, so, but each one, it just basically, it's, uh, you take the original look and feel from very popular shows here, and uh, let's look at most popular shows ever, TV shows ever and um, okay so more recently you've got Game of Thrones which meh, but I'm thinking more classical type stuff so The Office is one Um, you could certainly change that one and make it more you know you could change that but uh, the whole idea is taking the look and feel you know and um, Netflix I understand you're actually uh, generating a lot of your content you know leveraging machine learning and computer algorithms and that kind of stuff you know so let's say you do this you look at the look and feel of The Office and based on the cultural concept uh, and frame of mind and everything, without deviation from the Bible and from, you know, the Bill of Rights and everything, create a reality um, based on these cultural deviations, and at that point create a new version of The Simpsons, um, The Office, um, maybe Doctor Who, and Doctor Who could be really fun to watch in an alternate reality like this. Um, Battlestar Galactic could, could certainly be interesting um, the original and the new one especially the newer one you know see some cultural differences and changes and everything um, I what is it section city is another one going to bed Dad. Have a good night. Um, Roseanne, which I wouldn't want to see in some places, but it could be interesting. Uh, So here's the best TV shows ever. There's a couple different places, a Game Network and a... uh, I mean, I'm going to have my favorite. Sliders is definitely going to be one of them. Star Trek, I already mentioned that. Um, was well, was another one I enjoyed. Quantum Leap was another great one, too. You know, and these shows especially. So that's actually what I'm more interested in. is isn't necessarily watching, you know, Friends in another world, another universe. I mean, that could be interesting to see without hesitation. But it wouldn't draw me in as much as something like Sabrina potentially could. You know, I'm enjoying the hell out of Sabrina right now, and I'm starting to realize, like, hey, that, that can actually be really cool. But some of the other even more cool ones... Would certainly be watching Star Trek and these other worlds. Um, you know, like I said, watching uh, Sliders, especially Sliders. Um, you know, the. Uh, what is it? Um, I'm looking through these right now. I mean, but if you're uh, uh, capable of doing all shows, well, why not? I mean, why not just do some of the major ones? Uh, Family Ties is another major one, um, <laughs> The Brady Bunch is another one. Bob Newhart Show. Scrubs. True Blood, definitely. Alias, oh yes, definitely. Get Smart, definitely. Gilligan's Island, that would be a trip to see in alternate realities. Married with Children. Mork and Mindy. Saved by the Bell, and, and that's a whole, whole funny thing, Saved by the Bell, um, with uh, what's her name in, in the uh, show, she uh, also plays in a movie, um, oh, this movie is uh, about the stripper, it was so profoundly different elizabeth Berkeley, um different than her personality and everything and saved by the bell which let's say reality as i've seen it and everything has been a mashup of all of these different realities that have been piled into one well in one reality you know i see this you know playful saved by the bell where people are just really really profoundly nerdy you know and just really kind of like um goody-two-shoes and everything, and then you have this opposite version of Elizabeth Berkeley that's kind of like a hardcore, awesome stripper, and know, it's just like, wow, you know? Now, for me, it's just like, I i mean, it was at a time I thought everybody looked at and thought about the world the same way I did and everything, and I didn't realize how profoundly naive that was, you know, but, uh, I mean, here, you can actually take this version, you know, of, uh, of that showgirl t- movie place it firmly in that reality, and this reality still remains the clearinghouse, it's basically all the realities piled into one, you know, but these other realities, you can start shaping the culture differently and everything based on a a basis, and the basis is take Showgirls, you know, put it into that reality, you know, and uh, that's kind of like status quo for that kind of entertainment and everything. Take something like um, Short Bus, a movie that (laughs) really has some graphical scenes on it, and make it rated PG, that's it, you know, um, things like that, it's just like, you know, take Showgirls, you know, and make it rated, uh, rated, you know, PG as well, you know, where, at that point, you know, if you think about the, the rating system, you know, I don't know, Firefly's another move. a uh, TV show, that was a weird one for me, Taxi, Family Guy, I guess. Bewitched, definitely. How I Met Your Mother. The Wonder Years was cute. I'd like to see a different version of that. The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air could be interesting. Uh, I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking, Happy Days, Friday Night Lights, there's some great looking women in that, Dexter, definitely, The Muppet Show, (laughs) I'd love to, you know, you can actually take this recent movie that came out with that Lady I Hate and uh, take that and put it into The Muppet Show. Uh, maybe a Muppet universe. South Park. The Office, the US version of it. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, definitely, along with Angel, the, um, successor to that. The Big Bang Theory, maybe. I don't know. That one's a tough one. I don't watch it that much, and I know my mom likes it, but... Maybe there doesn't need to be different versions of that. The Walking Dead. The one thing I've thought about myself is if I was living in a world that uh, there was almost nobody alive or nobody alive, I might be running around naked myself. Cheers. House of Cards, definitely. Twin Peaks. Would it be any funkier? Twilight Zone. Oh, hell yeah. That could be really interesting, saying Twilight Zone from different uh, different places. Lost, maybe you'll have an answer, and it'll be found in some other, uh, universe. M.A.S.H. Sexton City, I already mentioned, The Simpsons. I Love Lucy. Maybe that could be an early precursor to some of the changes and everything. I mean, it is a, a cultural, an important cultural moment in uh, TV history and everything for my planet. Saturday Night Live, definitely. Sopranos is a big one, too, for my uh, my world. Game of Thrones has been big. The X-Files, definitely. Breaking Bad, definitely. And Friends. Um, I'm gonna look up most popular science fiction shows. Most popular. So I'm just talking about things that uh, if we're actually going to be going through the process of creating alternate realities here, and I know some of them are generated procedurally and everything, you know, you might as well leverage some of that procedural generation and everything to make these really interesting and deep and everything. And a lot of it requires, you know, the media, the the primarily the pivotal media moments, at least from TV and everything. Um, to maintain status quo and everything, or to maintain course and everything, you know, from my reality. And, um, you know, I, I, I suspect that uh, because of the popularity of some of these shows and everything, that that popularity isn't just here. You know, take something like Sex in the City. I just didn't get into the show, but I know it was hugely popular and I respect those people that actually were into it. Now, here's the thing if I can actually watch a, a more perverted version of that show, then absolutely I'm there, you know, hands down I would be there. You know, but, uh, or, I don't know, different variations and everything. And there was a couple of the actresses that I really liked and everything, but for the most part it just felt gossipy, it felt irritating to me. You know, it felt like um, daytime drama and everything that was put on nighttime TV that claimed to be a little bit more risque, but really kind of got, you know, got lost in its own drudgery. So for me, it's just like, if I can actually see this in an alternate reality where, you know, let, let's say, you know, I mean, I've just mentioned this X one just because it's the easiest one to focus on right now as a first one to build. You know, um, based on minor deviations in history and everything, and and all those deviations serve as, and this is important to keep in mind and everything. It's it's basically if you're going to build a deviation, a historical deviation, um, we're going to build it in here and now, right? You know, but uh, we're going to create the historical deviations and the chronology that actually makes sense from a rational perspective if you're actually going to be analyzing it from a rational perspective. You know, and take take into into account. You know, for instance, the, the the whole concept of Star Trek. Within Star Trek, Star Trek is actually consistent in itself as a universe and everything. Well, you know, the timeline itself does have internal consistency. Um, from an external perspective. and everything, That's what's really interesting. You know, so let's say we're going to be building a timeline that actually has chronological consistency and everything, you know, for this first timeline, which would be a highly sexually um, charged where everybody walks around n- naked all the time and that's pretty much status quo and everything. Well, you know, how is it, um... You know, first off, some of the things that we'd have to develop are definitely the backstory to this. What makes this chronologically, especially if you're you find yourself in it, um, and you find yourself investigating it, what makes it chronologically uh, sound within this um this temporal chronological framework? You know, um, what makes it, uh, you know, consistent. You know, um and my idea is to go to these places and just basically kick back and visit. You know, hang out, just you know, Starbucks just you know in Studio City would be a fucking delight in contrast to what I saw when I was at Starbucks this last time and everything. You know, instead of seeing the ghetto homeless people, instead I'd be seeing gorgeous naked women that just, you know, for some reason permeated the place. You know, and that's the whole thing is you can alter alter um the sensory experience and everything, you know, from an individualist perspective and everything, um, and you can also maintain this, you know, through the media, and the media itself would be the thing that would be changed. So not only could I go visit a place like this and say, hey, this is really kind of an important, you know, cool one to me that... I like hanging out on occasion, just to basically look and maybe participate, or maybe just to, you know, have sex or something like that on occasion. Now, maybe it's not my, you know, definitive place that I always stay at and everything, you know, but maybe it's just one of the destinations that I've chosen, particularly as a first destination, not only that, but a first place to, you know, in my mind, create, but then from there, um it's a destination to go to, you know, and the whole idea is, you know, chronologically, you know, you built this history and everything for this planet, you create the the pivot points and everything for the important TV shows, you generate those from a procedural perspective based on the um, historical content that's actually in place and everything, you know, that lists certain things, and, you know, you go through the process of, uh, of saying, okay, you know, um, And you go through the process of reanalyzing the procedural generation information to make sure that it's consistent with the rest of the programming and everything, and and with the intention. This is the key. The intention of this reality. Now, and that's why you work with the procedural generation schemes a little bit to actually find out, you know, um, how is it you can deviate it to the point of actually reinforcing what it is that you want. Well, for me, it's like in this reality, I'm more interested in just basically finding this my relaxation point. The place that I can go to that I know what to get, I know what to expect and everything. It's a, you know, it's more or less, it's my recuperation place. Um now when it comes down to building a timeline and that kind of shit with this one and everything no not really you know for me this is just more I pick things I choose things I do things that I want to yada 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 um, and it just basically maintains the forward momentum of this timeline in any way way, shape or form I feel fit you know and that's kind of what this timeline is but alternate timelines that I peek into they're more discrete in origin they're more disc- discreet in nature and, and that's by design you know and that just basically basically makes it so where I can go to these places you know and you know, anybody can go to these places, you know, once we opened up for a visitation, that kind of stuff. And uh, you can go there through, you know, through any number of mechanisms, you know, not the least of which is some of the um, holographic and uh, the alternate reality type material that's being presented, the augmented reality. You know, but uh, in addition to that, you've also got uh, other mechanisms. You know, some people have the capability to do things called astral traveling or astral projection. You know, um, this would be, you know, a destination you can literally go to through astral. Projection. Um, There's other, you know, other people command their minds in different ways and everything. They can certainly go visit these places, you know, um, leveraging their mind in ways, you know, foreseen and unforeseen. But um, the other one is another TV show. I'm going to start going through some other shows, particularly focus on science fiction things that I think would be really cool to make sure that when we create an an alternate reality, um, the shows that I've listed already are critical key points that are actually going to have to be altered um, for the look and feel of uh, of the culture that we're trying to implement and everything in the society, and to maintain forward momentum like that, too. So, shows like, um, Westworld is a brand new one that I absolutely loved. Um, Stargate, hands down, all the Stargates. SG-1, um, Discovery, um, what's the other one, um, Atlantis, gotta. Um, Firescape is another one, Futurama, definitely, um... Altered Carbon could be interesting without hesitation. Sense8, Rick and Morty, oh yeah, The Flash. This is actually something really interesting too. You know, I see a version of Flash and everything for this reality. Well, let's see if I, let's say I see a different version of The Flash in these alternate realities as well. Um, you know, tailored specifically for that reality. You know, that could actually be one of the cool things, you know, is what would that tailoring look like? Um, Lost in Space as a TV show. I like the premise. I don't like the uh, the execution of it that much. Um, Agents of S- Shield sucked in my reality, and I know it can actually be much better. Um, Timeless and DC's Legend of Tomorrow. Time traveling stuff for me within a timeline is fucking cool to you know to look at and everything, and just to imagine. Um, new T- Star Trek series called Discovery is actually kind of cool. That would be interesting. Fringe. Definitely, Um, from a technology perspective and everything. How is it technologically? Is this uh, world going to function differently and everything than ours? Um, Legion's another one that uh, could potentially uh, be ported over pretty interestingly. Um, Jessica Jones, definitely. Traveler's Piss-Poor, clever concept, Piss-Poor Execution, I think, can actually be interesting over there. The Orville, definitely. Uh, Torchwood, oh yes. Um, Daredevil, The Outer Limits, uh, Supergirl, without hesitation. You know, so each one of these, whenever you create a new reality, the goal would be to create these dreams or these dreams, these um these shows as more or less the anchors, you know, in that uh, in that reality, and they're tailored specifically for that reality. You know, so let's say we create another world that's um, oh. Let's just say, uh, there could be any number of reasons for a deviation, that we create a deviation. One deviation could be, you know, because we want to see a naked world, um, naked and sex world. You know, so uh, that's for no other reason. There's no historical basis for it. It's just a simple desire to actually see it and to actually make it work, Um, you know, from a bit-twiddling perspective and everything that's one perspective um let's say we want to simulate a world out where basically um maybe nixon didn't get impeached um or oh here's one um possibility where um challenger um may be met and maybe the people were saved in it by a ufo and that's when first contact was made Now, I have no fucking clue what would happen in that reality, but let's say the Vulcans actually came early, and in that reality, you know, they recognized that an event would happen that would so dramatically change the psyche of of America and not only the the, the rest of the world and everything, but that pivotal event caused a warp in space and time in ways they had never seen before, and boom. They end up showing up to prevent that from happening. Now they realized that they were dabbling with time travel for the first time and everything when they saved the crew of the Challenger at that point, and they jumped into the time travel game early based on that. So that's one possibility and everything. So first contact being made early, and uh, a, a fun, and uh, well, I wouldn't say fun, but a, a more and earlier than expected where they violated their own rules to be able to make this contact and everything and uh... they did it to basically try to save a planet you know so they saw that uh, that this could actually potentially cause some problems that they were afraid of um, that's one deviation i hadn't thought of before which could be interesting um, let's say you know um Let's say, rather than historical deviations, let's just do the omission, you know, of a certain country. Let's say, um, you know, um, one world where, let's just make it a small country to make it easy at first, where, oh, a country that has an obvious history with it, Not something pivotal to the psyche of America. Let's try to think. I'm just trying to think of the omission of a certain country in this alternate reality. What country could be omitted that has some detriment to the timeline, but it's not going to be huge? Somebody just mentioned Switzerland, and I'm saying no. Uh, It was too meaningful to me. (laughs) I'm trying to get away from thinking about ones that are meaningful to me versus ones that are just meaningful and period from a historical basis. Okay, Um, Croatia and, and Bosnia. No, because then we got to actually come up with a different uh, country name and everything for that. No, that could be it. Let's just say one conflict didn't occur. The Bo- Bosnian conflict didn't occur. And um, for some reason, things got sorted out and everything. Historical deviation, weird historical deviation. And uh, as a result, the whole n- nation of Yugoslavia persisted. You know, so Croatia never existed. Bosnia never existed. And all that stuff in there, you know, remained the same. Well, you know. What can we do to write a historical reality? To basically make it so we're, you know, I mean, there's tiny little things we can do to make it so that that history is altered and everything, you know. But what are the uh, the implications and everything from a long-term perspective and a short-term perspective, you know, for the deviations in the timeline and everything, you know, particularly if you let procedural generation run its course, you know. I you know I don't know if you want to go that far, but it's just like. I don't know. That's a possibility. You know, but uh, I think it's probably safer just to basically say, you know, that uh, the goal is to create um, isolated versions of alternate realities. You know, much much the same way I'm playing games. You know, versions of which I can go to, you know, and anybody can go to if you wanted to, you know, provided you have the right training, technology, um, mindset, uh, whatever, in order to be able to achieve it. And you can go there to visit. You can go there to tour. You can go there to you know, to hang out, you go there to live if you wanted to. Each one of them is equally as possible and everything. You know, so that's the whole goal. would be to create these realities, you know, that uh, not only could you potentially go there, you know, but also potentially open them up for trade. But that's kind of like the interesting from a legal perspective and everything. How do you preserve the culture over there? knowing that it's programmed, and also allow trade to occur at the same time. That's kind of a difficult thing to consider. Do Do you open it up for it at first? I would say no. You know, it's like making first contact with civilization and everything. You know, do you... the prime directive is, do you make first contact with a civilization that doesn't understand trade? You know, do you, um, <laughs> you know, there's too many questions there, right? You know, not only the deviation alteration of their culture, but your own, you know, in ways that you don't want it to. You know, and you can predictably, you know, know that's going to happen and everything. but in any case I like the idea of doing this and uh, you know really when it comes down to the whole ghosting mechanisms I think I was seeing you know on that screen and everything the analog screen um, early evidence of something you know I refer to as a holographic reality you know the matrix is is one perspective of looking at it and everything and um, you know for me it's just basically it's a programmed a programmed um, existence that I live in you know I mean I alter the program, I change the program here and there, Um, I accept my immortality. You know, um, I understand that I need to go through a psychological mind shift to basically take control of it again, and basically um, get control of my mind and be okay with being, um, not necessarily omnipotent, but uh, nearly omnipotent, uh, or I can't even say that, aware in in a psychological way of the capability and existence of a lot more, and not only that, but my, um, my branching off and imagining and envisioning these things is also what's responsible for creating more possibilities, not just in these alternate realities, but my own reality, you know, and, um, it's just like that, that's what keeps somebody like, (laughs) like me entertained, you know, it's also what apparently keep, you know, I had the one cue committing suicide, too, you know, it's just if those that have the capability—I don't know. So I like the idea of creating these alternate realities or influencing the creation of them. Um, I mean, I'm working on Watchdogs, you know, five at least intellectually at first. I'm coming up with ideas and, and possibilities and everything. It's going to be based on Phoenix, you know. But uh, the idea in the meantime is, hey. You know, um, this this game will be directly um, introducing the ideas and concepts of time travel and everything, and uh, I will be, um, from what I just realized today, I will be implementing a lot of this through uh, deviations in energy. So basically, the hacker uh, from the very start of the game will discover. A new form of hacking, and that completely bypasses traditional communication channels, TCP/IP, um, and network layers and hardware layers, and will actually work within energy. You know, so that's you know the capability to be able to hack and completely bypass things altogether, whether or not it's a firewall or things like that. Um, can be done, and that 's actually what this person realizes, but this person will also realize as they're going through this hacking process and everything that without rules that uh with uh without rules applied to oneself, those rules are actually um, universal, and as a result, you know, what ends up happening is a little bit of uh a, a little bit of a psychological mess until that individual comes to terms with and understands. It takes a little bit more, you know, that there's the necessity, you know, to be able to understand the intricacies of, of time and the implications without actually having a guidebook or instruction manual to be able to achieve it. And that's actually one of the things I plan on doing is introducing a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of different hacking possibilities um, that you can do. And the goal is to make sure I release it and it's not documented, not one piece of it. I want to have documented. Now others might want to draw documentation everything for it, but um, I'm suspecting to some degree that, uh, <laughs> I don't know, I'm not going to voice that suspicion, but um, Watch Dogs 2 that I'm playing is a temporal echo of the game I'm going to create, Watch Dogs 1 was as well, but uh, Watch Dogs 2 is the next iteration of it, and they're all going to be temporal echoes of the game that uh, that I'm going to be creating, that I'm in the process of envisioning mentally and everything that ultimately will manifest in a, a game that I program called Watch Dogs 5. So, in any case, I'm suspecting that's the nature of time, or at least that's the nature I've accepted it to be, and it also makes it for the most intriguing because, I don't know, I like the idea. I mean, I'm looking at people's houses and everything yesterday. I was looking at cameras around the world. There's a lot of cameras that uh, people have intentionally put up in their houses, and their apartments, um, both domestically and abroad. And uh, I was looking at the quality of life and seeing that there's so many similarities. You know, while well, there sure is definitely a... a marked um, difference in between western lifestyles versus eastern west lifestyles and and western lifestyles between different countries and everything Um, when it comes down to it it's just like people are acting very 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 similar you know no matter where you go and uh... an active question i've had you know for myself is um, if i was a traveler and uh... i was traveling times arrow and I can actually start making changes to the universe altogether. Um, how can I actually di- uh, differentiate and and, um, and cause branches in what it's known to be as the human experience? You know, I want to take this out to the outer limits. You know, and just basically say, okay, you know, if Supergirl was real, you know, in not just one universe, but in many different universes and everything, and you have these detached consciousnesses um, that didn't need a form, a body to call home, and they can actually freely float in between these. Um, Can I create a a universe where maybe one of these detached consciousnesses says, hey, that version of Supergirl and what she does, I like and give that detached consciousness a home. A place to basically say, hey, I kinda like this world, I kinda like the way it functions, I kinda like the way it works and everything. Now, the thing is, I can't do this by dictating the actions of, uh, of Supergirl um, authoritatively. Um, Well, I can actually but uh i i have to I have to consider the moral and ethical values and the struggle of that character and everything. And not only that, but I also have to paint a myriad of different possibilities. So let's say, you know, one of the minds that is absorbed is a mind a lot like my friend Jackie, or a lot like my friend Jocelyn. Both of them love being naked, they just, that was their preference and everything. Well, you know, what if I create a universe out there that, you know, has tight restrictions on clothes and everything and everybody has to wear clothes? Well, you know, if I create a Supergirl and they want to be Supergirl in this environment and everything and Supergirl wants to be naked, well, Supergirl's going to become public enemy number one, you know, by doing what she does. You know, so I could reinforce, absolutely reinforce, you know, that uh, societally that there's back pressure on that individual in order to, um, to, to be a certain way. But that will cause violent warfare over a long enough period or short enough period of time, and everything, because you've got a a super powerful individual posed against a super, you know, a society, and everything that creates this back pressure that becomes explosive. So that's not an answer, you know. It's a one-size-fits-all equation based on my concepts, you know, of how Supergirl should function. So I create many different versions of Supergirl, you know. Um, one. I mean, I already know the uh, the girl that. uh, that um, supposedly plays the actress and everything, you know, she's, there's a TV show called The uh, Homeland, and the girl's naked in it. You know, same girl, Melissa, Melissa Benoist. Um, in another alternate reality, she's, you know, in Glee, and she's a, a show club, and she's, you know, singing her heart out and everything. You know, so she's playful. She's not Supergirl in that one, but she has the same form and function and everything um, that the other girl does, you know, so... But that one's mortal, you know, so while there's the same image that can be shared across different realities and everything of the same woman, um, just because I see one version of Supergirl doesn't mean reality is limited to that one version of Supergirl. You know, so what I'm saying is, you know, that girl that's, uh, that loves to be naked, you know, in Homeland, you know, um, you know, she's also loves to be naked, you know, as a super girl, you know, um, in, in an alternate reality that's actually there. Each one of these realities, you know, has a place in everything. So, and it really it comes down to anything I can think of is true. You know, anything you can think of is true as well. You know, so anytime you ask a question, well, what about this? You know, this can't be true. Well, it is. You know, if you can't imagine how it's possible, well, it's just because you're not opening up your imagination to the possibilities. I mean, not everybody wants to do what I'm doing, you know, when it comes down to the imagination and the possibilities. So I I fully admit that. You know, it gives me a headache sometimes. That's okay. You know, but um, really, you know, it just comes down to if there are, you know, a finite different set of versions and everything of conscious minds that actually want to inhabit a specific version of Supergirl. That is, you know, it has a character, traits, and balances, and everything. Then I consider it kind of like our prerogative, our, our, our job, our responsibility to the conscious minds of this reality to provide them the home that they want. It really is that simple. You know, it's like me being Q. I've accepted the identity of Q, plain and simple. You know, I know that eventually, boom, I'm going to be able to snap my fingers and be anywhere, anytime. I think, remarkably different than I did seven years ago and everything. And um, for me, it's indistinguishable whether or not it was simple willpower that got me to this point and everything, where I defeated everything in my path, um, and I achieved this through sheer tenacity. You know, or, you know, um, whether or not this is just a simple path and it was, you know, correlated from a a rational, logical level, you know, that uh, calculated infinity and came back and basically said, hey, this is where you're going, you know, where you fit, and as a result, we've created a reality specific for your personality profile and everything, and boom, you're there. You know, you're going to become exactly what you want to be. Well, I mean, you know, that's the whole thing. You know, um, I I figure, pay it forward. Flat out, pay it forward. Make sure others get their wishes, too. You know, that's why I like the idea of learning how to, how to hack, but not necessarily at a bit-twiddling binary perspective and everything. That That is, you know, while script kitties may be insulted and everything, I like the idea of being a script kitty and basically having all the things filled out behind the scenes. And I know that when I push a button, boom, it's going to do what it's supposed to do. I've been there, done that with the bit-twiddling. I'm fucking tired of it. You know, but uh, what other options do I have right now? Well... You know, it comes down to talking on a podcast, to discussing some of these concepts and everything, to hoping something or someone out there is listening to, that I'm putting out the vibrations or the energy or whatever to create the momentum to actually start developing these alternate realities. And I'm seeing evidence, you know, that the words I'm using and things I'm saying and everything, you know, are causing, you know, the expansion of these possibilities and everything, you know, um... And there could be the converse question, too, is are these actually, uh, you know, is a the programming there to stimulate me to believe that I'm actually doing this and, and that they were already there? Well, it comes down to reciprocation. You know, um, both are, are true at the same time. You know, my thoughts are being stimulated at the same time. My, my thoughts are stimulating the development of this material and everything. Yeah, you know, it's just a reciprocation event and everything. So you learn, I, I have learned to quit asking questions about where material comes from and why, and basically start saying instead, um, I don't like this certain material, and intentionally avoiding the things that have no redemptive value with it. You know, for me, or the redemptive value is exceeded um, by the uh, the 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 light that is it's combined with. And the things I don't like, you know. So basically, saying it, I prioritized in my prioritized in my mind the things that are actually more entertaining, more more fun um, for me to engage in intellectually and everything, such as Sabrina, for instance, you know, versus the overall you know insulting or you know the demeaning or negativity it might actually supply that I don't want. So or the darkness and that kind of stuff. So. <laughs> In any case, ghosting. That was the original thing that I was talking about. It's just evidence of the alternate realities, you know, of multiple realities. You know, are getting a glimpse into alternate realities. And uh, I'm suspecting that my mind um, saw deviations that were so profound and so impossible to resolve, you know, for some of these realities, that uh, it, it ended up basically isolating these and disassociating them from me by referring to them as... Uh, as, you know, more or less, um, fiction, in some cases, you know, or other different labels and everything. You know, and when I say my mind, I, say, I mean you. I mean, you're all effectively neurons that actually feed into my mind in a feedback loop. You know, so you could be a movie director or producer over in Hollywood, you could be Will Smith, you could be, you know, Jack Black, you could be any number of different people, you know, Bill, William. Um, Clinton you could be Bill Gates it doesn't fucking matter you know you're neurons to me as much as i'm neuron a neuron to you you know feeding back into you you know but uh, for me i know it sounds like insanity and everything if you're trying to analyze it from a rational perspective um, but the binary rationalism um, really kind of breaks down Once you actually start realizing, you start questioning the true origin of the nature of the galaxy and everything, you actually try to trace the origin down in a linear perspective to a certain point in space and time without considering the non-linear nature of space and time. So you could follow things and, and always think that a cause must have an effect, and that effect must always precede the cause, you know, um... But it, it starts breaking down at, uh, at levels that uh, the magnitude just basically gets to the point of basically saying, "Well, shit, you know." Chronologically, I can change my chronology on my resume anytime I want to. Same thing holds true for my history. Same thing holds true for reality. It really does. So the whole idea of creation and everything, yeah. Ultimately, I got to the point of basically saying, "I, I created myself because I wanted to be here." Not necessarily in this capacity, but I am learning a lot right now, you know, learning how to cook for the first time and ever. You know, I thought I was a cook before, but no, now I'm really learning how to cook. I'm um, learning about different perspectives when it comes down to programming. And um, seeing some things materially, you know, as far as programming is concerned, it's are giving me new ideas and everything I never considered. I think I lived a little bit of an isolated uh, existence and everything before sheltered, filtered, and uh, I don't know. It's been interesting, that's for sure. But ghosting, though, just getting nothing but a glimpse of alternate realities and everything. Now, you know, sure, there's the tale, you know, that uh, everything is waveform and this VHF and UHF type stuff and everything is um, how information is received, and um, Here's the way I look at things is, you know, there's a uh, concept I I discussed um, not too long ago about the map is not the terrain. And the same thing holds true for information that's received, too. You know, you may get a visual image and everything that you're receiving in your mind, you know, of something, and uh, the analysis of that image and everything is kind of like the, um, you know, what, what we refer to as intelligence, you know, the ability to be able to perceive this information and actually give a label to it and, and give meaning to that uh, to the information that we're receiving through the senses and everything. Um, but these labels that are affixed to this thing called reality and everything aren't necessarily the only label. They're not necessarily the only me- mechanism of identifying something. You know, for instance, um, the atomic, uh, the atomic belief in something called atomic theory and that uh, all matter, and, and matter is, re- is referred to as something that's consisting of mass, and mass is something that's visible, um, is something that's perceivable and it's breaking, you can be broken down to atoms. And those atoms have certain qualities about them, basically the atoms are what comprise the biology, which is what comprises the um, chemistry which breaks down into the atomic structures and everything that all break down into energy and that energy itself is something that's you know more or less manipulated by the mind um, through physics and uh, through other other mechanisms like computer science and everything so and law and philosophy and whatnot each one is a superimposed system on energy that actually manages and and, uh, arranges energy in specific ways and everything and a lot of them conflict with each other but uh, with that said um, you have this um, capability for you know for a person to actually perceive an image and um, that image itself is is nothing more than a fixed point in space and time that's a visual reference now what's actually giving that instance uh, that image substance and idea and meaning and everything is nothing more than the individual and as you investigate the labels that we create has a tendency of expanding the possibility and the pool of information that's actually given to us and made available to us however um, there's certain limitations to that as well. And uh, those limitations are inbuilt in the labels that we actually assign to it. When I was uh, going through my life coaching class, for instance, I actually ended up talking to a, um, we had to life coach each other going through the class and everything. And um, one of the girls that, uh, she was extremely depressed and everything, she ended up uh, discussing over and over again how how her ailment is more or less um, ADD, you know. And uh, she's experienced it her whole life and it makes her absolutely, no, it's OCD. And uh, uh, or some no bipolar it was sentinel on those lines, and um, she identified with this so strongly that it disabled her, absolutely disabled this girl. She, you know, whenever she had conflicts and everything arising, you know, she'd blame everything, all her problems and everything, on this disability that uh, she had been labeled and everything. And as a result, she threw up her hands in despair and everything until, quote unquote, you know, I learned about life coaching. I learned I can actually coach my way through to have a happier, positive attitude about my uh, about my disability and everything. So rather than throwing her hands in up in despair, she, um, interpreted her, um, her aid, her whatever ailment, you know, that she identified it with, and instead of, uh, saying to herself, I fucking hate this, I fucking hate this, you know, she said, this is a fucking part of me, this is a fucking part of me. Now, I don't consider that necessarily wrong, to the point that it completely disabled her from being able to progress or do certain things, you know, in these areas and everything. And, um, the whole disablement and everything for me is, is really kind of like, a you know, saying, hey, here's a roadblock here, I refuse to actually budge on this and everything. So we ended up, um, you know, coming to agree to disagree and everything, and she basically looked at anybody with an ailment, a disease or anything like that, as being like her. They're all diseased, they're all disabled, they're all problematic and everything, so am I, and that's how I relate to them. And I'm just like, you know, that's kind of like, um... You know, it's called. I call it the victim syndrome. You know, so somebody actually, you know, believes that uh, anything that happens to him is as a direct result of stimulation from the outside world, and uh, that they are not responsible for for the way they process that information. You know, that's that's the responsibility of the outside world and everything. You know, so you can look at this uh, from a disease standpoint. um, You know, AIDS all the way to. What's the new one that they just invented? methylomia or whatever it is. I get a kick out of these, you know, day day-based diseases that are invented and everything. So somebody can actually identify with this this disease, make new conversations based on this disease, go to the doctor and talk to the doctor and become social based on this disease, you know, and all, all because it's been something just recently diagnosed and it's almost like these people are, you know, doing this whole you know, chasing an ambulance type thing, what, what lawyers do and everything, based on, you know, this hypochondria of assigning this self-assignment of this label and disabling themselves as a result of it. Well, I don't know. I don't like it myself. You know, I myself, I, I have a tendency to look at um, the things that uh, that I that others assign to me, you know, and to some of the things that I assign to myself. And I try to find a way um, through it, you know. For instance, epilepsy. I didn't believe it was epilepsy, you know, when they diagnosed it with me, me with it. Now I'll mention it again, Now I've mentioned it a couple times and everything, too. And for me, I looked at this and basically said, okay, you know, what's been written about epilepsy doesn't match me. Um, now I'm I at first called the uh, diagnosis wrong until I started understanding that what others saw um, versus what I perceived this happened about six years ago and everything weren't one and the same other people saw me going through convulsions and saw me having a uh, you know some kind of attacks and everything and I myself I I actually uh, refused to actually identify with this disease, and as a result, I refused to identify with the chronology that was expected of me to you know to fit and conform to the uh, collective belief systems assigned to me by based on this this disease and everything. So as time went on and everything, I started understanding that uh, the disease is a product of the mind as much as the body is, you know. And um, with this said and with this in mind, you know that's actually how I eliminated my stress-related elements and everything. Um, but it's also what came, made me help me come to understand you know that the matrix um from a neo perspective and, and content is more or less an introduction to alternative possibilities you know into the existence and being able to make meaning and make sense of this you know this thing that i'm in you know and um to to more or less really put to light and basically say some people are going to feel terrified that they're trapped in this thing but others namely myself, are going to feel empowered. We're going to realize the possibilities that it offers. Sure, there's going to be some limitations that are going to be involved with it and everything, but those limitations create some predictability and actually make it, from a personal perspective and everything, that I can sleep at night. That I can feel loved, that I can feel hope. And when I see a ghost on a TV, or when I remember seeing a ghost on a TV, or when I hear about a ghost in the real in real life and everything, you know, from the various stories that have littered this planet and everything since <laughs> since I can remember, I know that a ghost is nothing more than a bleed over from an alternate reality. Somebody has chosen to exit the stage of my life, and thus created an alternate reality. And that ghost is nothing more than a reflection and an indication of the dilation of, of the physical construction of, of the universe itself and everything that's being formed in that alternate reality. Now, deviation in time causes the deviation in physics. And all I'm seeing is the echo in my reality of that deviation. Now, I myself, I haven't uh, physically seen ghosts. I've seen, you know, weird things. um, But nothing I would, like, directly classify as, like, a ghost or anything like that. But I'm certainly receptive to the possibility. You know, and I've seen it on TV. So, with that said, I don't know. The uh, digital concepts and everything constructs that create my reality are <laughs> more or less just evidence of, you know, of a belief pattern and everything. Now, am I in the analog? I suspect I am now, and I'm also suspecting that some believe that it's impossible to exist here. You have to come to terms with infinity. Some believed, I think, wrongly. that you have to understand it. Well, you could simplify it into pretty much one sentence. Anything is possible. The order I make is the order... uh, the order I live in is the order I make. It really is kind of that simple. But. Dissociation is what makes possibilities. Denial, self-denial, you know, is what what allows for the discovery of things that you didn't even know existed before. So, in any case, yes, I would like to see these shows and everything replicated in alternate realities that we as a uh, society and world create. You know, and, um, I know there's a lot of disembodied minds and everything that I'd like to, uh, give a home to. Um, how to communicate with them and how to actually create this communication back and forth with the respective agencies and everything that could be responsible for creating these alternate realities, I sincerely don't know. Um... I suspect to some to Graham a little bit of a conduit and maybe a channeler of this information and everything. You know, I suspect the worlds like watchdogs and Grand Theft Auto and that kind of stuff are, you know, evidence of the creation and the influence of spirits or beings or disembodied minds and everything that are actually involved in creating these ultimate realities and everything. Um, it doesn't mean, you know, that, uh that this is the limitation of it, um, I'm suspecting there's a lot, lot more out there because of this whole revisitation thing for the, uh, for the naked reality and everything, and, um, I'm just suspecting that there's a lot of minds out there that are just simply looking for this just because this is what they call home and they feel natural at So, in any case, um, I don't know. I think that uh, the exploration and creation of possibilities is kind of our responsibility as a species now, and uh I'm talking about as a collective species you know known as planet Earth or earthlings so what what I can do in this process fuck if I know sincerely, I don't know, but uh I'm gonna check out now and go get my uh raspberry sherbet or no, it's not sherbet; it's sorbet that's right, and um I'm probably going to hit the sack early tonight. I ended up getting another new book by Zach King. He's a uh, wonderful, um, more or less, a Photoshop, a Premiere, Adobe Premiere Pro, and uh, After Effects, um, kind of like a magician. He's done some awesome things with it, and he's created his own child's book. And I'll read it just because I, I like the guy, and I, I like his creativity. So I'm kind of curious what um what a mind like his produces for a book. So, anyways, um, as usual, thank you for listening, and, uh, yeah, three fucking hours today. Wow, I'm on a roll.